This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get him out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, featuring myself, Hank, and my lovely and voluptuous host, Bindu. Eh? Eh, indeed. 8th of January, 2021. Warrant Officer Dennis Crooks Crew Camp, 090230 Bravo, Rhodesian Light Infantry, Salus Scouts. Warrior, shit disturber, legend. Few living men can compare to his reputation. He pissed off a lot of his officers, but was always a good troop. He once made a 200-kilometer escape and evasion situation from terrorist-occupied territories look like a cakewalk. He had too many ops behind enemy lines to list. He was the recipient of the Bronze Cross of Rhodesia for combat gallantry. After a valiant fight against leukemia, COVID-19 sent our beloved Crooks to his final recce mission into the great beyond. He left us one of the finest memoirs of a Sealess Scout warrior, the Bush War in Rhodesia, and a treasure trove of knowledge of the truth about Rhodesia. Rest in peace, Dennis Crew Camp. That was actually the epitaph I wrote to Crooks um, this past January when he passed away. Obviously, he was a legend in certain communities among the Rhodesian Wenwees, among those that are students of Rhodesian military history or military history in general. He was a legend. And one of his most legendary escapades was the aforementioned 200-kilometer escape and evasion scenario over the course of six days, which in many ways pushed him to his physical and mental limits, but never broke him. Mm-hmm. He was an incredible operator, incredible scout, an incredible man in an equally incredible unit. The best of the best, so they say, and that's that's no exaggeration. And um, I think there's very few people in history that can kind of come close to... <laughs> The stuff, the, let's call it the exploits of Dennis Crocomp. He was quite the man. Um, We were planning on doing this podcast a little bit earlier in the year. A few logistical and administrative things came up in terms of getting things going on the website, getting things done in the back end in terms of finances equipment, figuring out tech, which took us many, many, many hours. Turns out if you run a podcast, guys, you actually spend the least amount of time actually doing the podcast. I know. Yeah, we've spent the most amount of time just like setting stuff up mm-hmm. before like like tech wise. So we were meaning to get to this because we, we both have read um his extraordinary memoir. Incidentally called the Bush War in Rhodesia, the extraordinary combat memoir of a Rhodesian reconnaissance specialist. Um, the specific publication we have is, I think it's a 2007 publication, I remember correctly, from exactly uh, yeah, Paladin is. Press, the now defunct yeah. Paladin Press, which used to publish a lot of these 
older Rhodesian bush. Yeah, well, I'd say war stories. They used to do like sketchy stuff, like anarchist cookbook and hitman diary and stuff, uh, which were kind of all bunkin' BS, to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest. But um, definitely excited people and and got them reading. Uh, it was started by the you know the dude Robert K. Brown over at Soldier Fortune magazine. Unfortunately, his partner passed away. I think I think in 2018, if I remember correctly, or 2017, 2018, and uh, they they ended up having to close that company. So a lot of these books are out of print, and uh, it's good to it's good to read this. The nice thing is though, the podcast just before this with Chris Cox, as we had previously mentioned in the podcast, and you can probably see it now on the website and on FireForceVentures.com, which is my website. Fire Force, in its original, I guess, actually, I guess it's fifth edition now, mm-hmm. is up, uh, as well as Chris Cox's other book, Survival Course, which details um, his time in the BSAP after his time in the RLI, which is detailed in Fire Force. So the, both of those books, which are formerly uh, published at Paladin Press, are now available. You can check those out now at fireforceventures.com if we have any available left in stock. But that being said, we were really, really stoked to do Dennis's story. And then, you know, January, or I think it was probably November, we had discovered that not only was he, well, I guess he was dealing with um, a very, very aggressive leukemia. Yeah, that was November. And he wasn't. He wasn't in the best of shape, and we had we had tried at this stage to make contact with the family, you know, to um, just just to get his like blessing and stuff, yeah, his and, permission, and his permission, it. and a little bit of a, uh, um, I guess uh, the last word. Let yeah. him let him get the last word, and that ended up not materializing because on January. The eighth of, of twenty twenty one, we discovered that he had passed away uh, as a result of complications, not only from the leukemia but from COVID nineteen in South Africa. So, unfortunately, we never in in our lifetimes got the chance to communicate with him, and we're we're always blessed whenever we get the opportunity to communicate with actual Rhodesian Bush War vets. Obviously, that's something that's near and dear to our hearts. Uh, so, it's a bit of a shame that we couldn't make things happen um it is what it is and uh in our own way we hope we can we can really plug this book if you can get a copy of it and uh and and keep that keep the memory of this man alive we hope in the most respectful way possible that this can serve as a little bit of a tribute to an extraordinary man very much so who was again one of the best of the best during the Rhodesian Bush War, a real, um, a real treasure trove. So this this book is very, very comprehensive. It's about four hundred and fifty odd pages of, at least in this edition, very, very small text. And we, like, we are not going to cover this whole book in no. the traditional <laughs> sense, because previously you might have heard another podcast especially the one we did for Fire Force, where we, we literally have two parts to it. Uh, we've done Storm of Steel, where, again, 
we cover beginning to end and we go on beginning to end for this we're gonna cover we're, we're gonna try our best to stay chronological but we might uh deviate <laughs> yeah, we, we never cover any book a hundred percent because we do want our listeners to go out and read these texts yeah, for ourselves yeah. and discover more about these stories because you know there's stuff we might have missed but Th- this one's this big. one we're gonna cover even less than we usually do just because it's yeah. so big yeah exactly so yeah. if we haven't harped the point already enough like read the book get the book if you can get a copy I know technically they're out of print right now because Peloton Press doesn't exist anymore, but there are copies floating around. Should be on Amazon and stuff like that. Yeah, but I, I th- those are going to dry up, I imagine. I don't know. I, by the time you're listening to this podcast, I don't know if there's going to be any copies left. Like as of right now, I know there are, but they're they're going to dry up because Paladin is just they're not publishing this anymore, yeah. right? They're um, it's an old publisher, so all the books are old stock that you know were bought up by a bookstore or something or floating in the ether. So if you can even get it used, you, you really need to read this memoir. I think before you go into it, you need to have a basic understanding of the Rhodesian Bush War, or at least Rhodesian history beyond the superficial short shorts and FNs. I mean, that stuff's cool, but there there's a lot more going on historically. This The Rhodesian Bush War was the culmination of a history dating back 70 years before UDI. So you have to understand a little bit about it, about the colonial context of Southern Rhodesia and the, and the Federation, and then eventually um, Southern Rhodesia again and independence. So you have to know a little bit about this. You have to know a little bit about the chronological events of the war and the timeline. You have to know a little bit about the units uh, because Dennis doesn't skip a beat. He just tells you day by day almost what's going on in in his life. It's a very 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 comprehensive book. It's it's almost as though he put every single story he could have ever told about his life on paper, right? And 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 communicated with all of us, which like is is a total a total blessing because it's he's covering almost 14 years of history which is which is pretty incredible i'd say you do you get did you get the same vibes when when you were reading this uh yeah i mean it is it is quite a as you said comprehensive memoir the the amount of detail he puts in and i'm not knocking anybody else who ever wrote about the whoever wrote about the bush war uh Every memoir I've written has been fantastic, but Crew Camp certainly puts a lot of detail into it that I think is unsurpassed, probably. So I know we we had discussed this earlier. You mentioned that it was it gave you very Storm of Steel vibes. Yes, um, Crew Camp is a very different character from someone, say, like. Uh, Chris, I know you're probably going to listen to this, but our friend Chris Cox. That's not a criticism of you. <laughs> anyway, we love you, man. We I hope, to, Chris, get, I think we hope would, to get you on again. <laughs> yeah, I think Chris would agree, though. Yes, yeah. He was a, he was a special character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Chris does call him a, a lovely, lovely man, but he was special. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's Chris, the best way to describe yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Chris is very much an ordinary man in extraordinary times. Dennis Krukamp gives me more the vibe of he's somebody who very much functions well in a sort of war environment and probably doesn't function well outside of it. It almost feels like in some ways 
the myths about Rhodesia and the crazy bearded dudes going into Mozambique on missions with two to three dudes covered in black is beautiful. Masunga camouflage paint. Well, I don't know if it's paint. It's probably some some other weird, gross chemical compound. They smothered it on their face, basically going in in blackface, pretending to be a black terrorist and causing absolute mayhem while wearing, like, short shorts and stuff. Scraggly, wearing tennis shoes, right? Carrying t communist weapons, communist, you know, Chicom weapons or Eastern Bloc weapons, and just being a shit disturber, as I as I said in my little epithet at the beginning there, that was Dennis Crocomp. Yeah, very much so. Like, he was that... It was crazy, like, he literally embodied, like, the myth. Because that wasn't the whole Rhodesian bush, whereas we studied with uh, our look at Fire Force. Fire Force and obviously talking to Chris Cox and some of the future works that we're going to be looking at. That's not the Rhodesian bush, or it wasn't... It wasn't as insane not even intense but insane because some of it was these fire force missions where they're being called out regularly that was an aspect of the war there was an air war there was a war with the british south africa police which took a pretty significant casualty rate as a paramilitary civilian police force in, in, in some sense they fought their own war it was very very different than the war the rli fought or the war that the rhodesian armored car regiment fought or the war that the Rhodesian SAS fought. Uh, this was the war of a Salus scout, not only as a member of that elite unit, but also as a member of that unit's uh, recce element, mm -hmm. which conducted very, very small team ops in very, very austere environments without a lot of back... Well, <laughs> with, with that sounds like no backups at all sometimes. Yeah. And uh, in Crocom's case, it ends up leading to this incredible six-day, 200-kilometer trek under enemy fire, basically. In the African bush. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the African bush, under enemy fire for most of that period of those six days, completely wrecking himself physically and mentally, getting into firefights, I think, well, far too many for him to even remember. Outgunned, outmanned, alone, starving dehydrated and amazingly he made it back and he lived to tell the tale it is one of the most impressive military history escape and evasion scenarios in military history i said military history twice but that's just how impressed i am yeah it, it, it honestly it is it is something else what what he went through so we're going to be going over that i know we've we've prefaced this podcast like a lot more than we normally do but again we're going to be we're going to be jumping over huge sections of the book just to just to kind of get some of the ideas and and things across. Um, I, I want to start off with as as we look into this book, uh, he 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 runs into a lot of very very well known names in the world of Rhodesian military history. Names that a lot of people will perhaps recognize. I know for a fact that I've certainly posted about a number of these individuals on Fire Force Ventures because previous to this podcast, we had done a lot of posts which we tagged under the Men Among Men stories. And a lot of these individuals are mentioned in Crocom's books because he runs into people over his 14-year career. I think it's 14 years. 
It's over. It was over a decade. It was a long, long time he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and compared to a lot of other people who served reps in, in the RLI, it was like a you know two year contract, right? It was, it was national. I think it was a year contract. So, yeah, that's right. It was a year, and then it turns into two years for for Chris. So some people had a very long war. Some people had a relatively short war. And in in Crocomp's case, he had a he had a long war. That's why he's a long book. But that being said, he runs into guys like Warrant Officer Yanni Nell, who people may remember the name, uh, Jan Andreas Nell, Salute Scouts, uh, Military Legion Emerit. He was killed in action at the first raid of Mapai in Mozambique. That is an episode discussed at length by another book, A.J. Bellum's Bush War Operator. And I think I, I have posted about him as well and in, in, in the uh, Mapai incident. Uh, Captain Chris Schellenberg, recipient of the Grand Cross of Rhodesia, I believe he was only one of two recipients during the entire Bush War, which was the highest combat decoration you could have received during the Rhodesian Bush War by as a member of the Rhodesian Security Services uh, for his extraordinary acts of daring and courage is almost an understatement oftentimes conducting one valor maybe valor that sounds a bit more no that's 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 almost an understatement what what he was doing was conducting kind of one-man army missions into enemy territory which is which is war movie stuff except that was schellenberg's reality so he does he actually operates with chris on a few occasions shelly shuley as he calls him i probably mispronouncing that but Captain Chris Schellenberg, he does run into him. Um, he runs into a Sergeant Martin Chicondo, who he has a actually kind of an interesting relationship with, a former Rhodesian African Rifles soldier, who I've def- I definitely recall doing a profile on him because he stays in the Zimbabwean National Army, and he actually rises to the rank of Major in the Rhodesian, or sorry, not the Rhodesian, the Zimbabwean SAS after the Bush War. He sticks around in Mugabe's army, and unfortunately, he is murdered in the 1990s, shortly after his time in the army. I don't know if you even know that. Yeah, he was murdered. Uh, According to certain sources, there's a potential that he was murdered due to his previous affiliations to the Rhodesian government even though he wasn't exactly loyal to like the Rhodesian front or anything like that and he did do like many many years in the ZNA so not just the Rhodesian army he did many many years as an officer in the Zimbabwean National Army um I don't know if he was fully operational or anything because he you know he's a pretty high he was a major so I, I don't know if he was in the field but you know he's a retired major very very decorated he had served for decades but apparently someone had some sort of a gripe with him and he died in the 90s he was killed in in zimbabwe shortly after his retirement from the military so he's mentioned in bush war in rhodesia by Crocomp on several occasions his name is brought up a few times major john murphy another one that i've done an extensive 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 uh series on Men Among Men stories at Fire Force Ventures. He was a Floridan, U.S. Army veteran. I think he was a Vietnam vet. Big into airborne stuff. Hardcore dude. 
one of his catchphrases was "Tally ho" and away we go. I don't know if it comes up in the in the book, but I I know that apparently like he he liked to say that on on ops, and he was he was just a hardcore, um, hardcore dude, John K. Murphy. So Major Major Murphy later joined the South African Defense Force uh, and unfortunately died in the 1980s due to a parachute malfunction. Well, he's attached to, I think, their, their parabats. So, you know, he, he tried to stick around and, and do the the whole soldiering in Africa thing for another decade in his mind. And, um, yeah, just freak accident while parachuting, which happens. Uh, Clive Mason is another one. Man, there's just... We could rattle off these names forever. This is probably going to be the last one I rattle off because there's like a whole list here I'm looking at. But Clive Mason who again I've covered on Fire Force Ventures, Sniper, who was, according to all accounts, racking up 10 to 20 kills a day on the border of Mozambique because he was a ex-Australian Special Air Service sniper and did time in Vietnam, did time in Borneo, apparently, with the Royal Marines. Like he, like, he was all over the place. He was an international soldier. Very, very good sniper. Very good marksman. The only man in the entire Rhodesian army to have been designated as a sniper because he actually ran the sniper qualification course and he never passed a single student. <laughs> that was Clive. Clandestine Clive, as they called him. Sadly, he was uh, killed in action before the end of the Bush War, apparently having taken out four, five, maybe six enemy fighters, from my understanding, for Limo in Mozambique. He got a little overconfident, stood up, kept trying to take the fight to the enemy, and he was actually shot right between the eyes by all accounts, and, and uh, Crow Comp recounts that as well. But there's some interaction with this clandestine Clive, who is an interesting character. I've named about five different people now at this stage, and you might be thinking, like, wow, that's a lot of stories. There's more. <laughs> you need to read this book. There's there's a lot going on in this book. Um, I'll leave it at that. There's, there's a few more we could we could probably rattle off uh, as well. Like Ron Reed Daly, I'm not going to talk about right. Like we'll we'll go we'll circle back to Ron Reed here in this podcast for sure because he has a lot of dealings with with the boss Uncle Ron, as the troops called him in the Sleuth Scouts, who was a founding commanding officer of the Sleuth Scouts, Colonel Ron Reed Daly. So. Lots of characters, lots of very, very colorful people right there beside Crow Comp. And that's that's what makes this book like something else. All these like legends that you hear of are right there beside Crow Comp. And they're the ones in many ways, like these this very, very small body of very talented people that are very good at pseudo operations doing their thing. Um they're the ones that really make this story well worth reading. Okay, so I've been rambling on forever. Let's let's get into the book now. If I've tried to plug it as much as I can, let's actually get into the book and uh, eventually get to this ENE, which I really want to talk about. So Dennis Krukamp, like Chris Crocs, is what I would call a true blue roadie. He's born in... Born and bred in Rhodesia in a small town. He's from a German-Dutch background. And he actually has some funny stories about when he was a kid. 
including yeah. that his grandfather used to hit him with a World War II German belt with the Gott uh, mit uns on the, the we, belt we, buckle. We do not condone Nazism or corporal punishment, but, no, but it such is was the 50s. Fact. Such was the 50s. He was born in 1945. Yes. So such such were the times. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his, he talks a lot about his uh, grandmother and his grandfather he was very close to, and apparently his grandmother's servant once threw caustic soap in his face. And Dennis passes all this off as, oh, build character. So he was a tough guy from day one is what I'm getting here with this yeah. background. And, and one, of, one of the things he wanted to do as a, as a young kid is become a badass mercenary. Yes, he did. I mean, in 1963, he hears about this civil strife going on in the Congo, particularly Katanga, and he actually tries to hop the border at, like, way underaged mm-hmm. and stupid with no military experience and try to go be a badass mercenary. And he's, he's caught at the border by some less than sympathetic police officers yeah. the BSAP, <laughs> and he's, uh... He gets, he gets like, the shit kicked out of him, essentially. Yeah. He gets knocked around a little bit. Yeah. And then, like, for some... This is why Dennis was crazy because he's telling this story in the book, and it's like you're you're almost like listening to him tell it. One thing leads to another, and he ends up losing his virginity to this random chick um, on the way back. On the way back. On the home. way back from getting beaten up at the border. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of guy Dennis was. He was yeah. 16 years old he, trying to become a merc, and then losing his virginity on the way back. On the same like week. Yeah. He tries makes... to tries to he runs away from home. Tries to be, try to become an illegal mercenary. Right in a le- in a legal unrecognized state, even like more unrecognized than Rhodesia, yeah. and he loses his virginity instead yeah. to a much older woman. Yeah, he makes <laughs> he like I don't know who is seducing. Who. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's just anyway. yeah. he's cooler than you, is what I'm saying. Yeah, Whoever's listening to this, a, <laughs> there are a few mentions of his of his manhood that he describes in the book. He does not mince words about that either. But that's neither here nor there. He 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 is a, he is cooler than you. Uh, so he's clearly a man of action at an early age, and it is almost a guarantee that a guy like him was going to join the newly formed Rhodesian Light Infantry, which he does in the 1960s. As soon as he's of age, I'm, I'm not sure if it's like national service that he goes. Like I think he just volunteers. He's just like he yeah. was he was gonna pursue that path right he was always one with the bush so to speak mm-hmm. he wasn't a city boy he, he, he wanted he wanted to be in the shit whatever it was and it would be 1967 two years after UDI that Crocomp gets his first like real taste of action Op Cauldron 1967 which is one of the first major operations of the Rhodesian Bush War Flashpoint, if you will. A flashpoint. Several dozen terrorists uh, cross the border into Rhodesia from the north and start causing a little bit of mayhem. In response, a joint Rhodesian African Rifles, Rhodesian Light Infantry Task Force, I think even elements of the Rhodesia Regiment, basically the entirety of the security forces, including the Air Force, show up. Overwhelming fire superiority give these guys a black guy and Dennis is there and I think he is the first time he fires in anger 
um, as a junior soldier. And I like a lot of people who will describe the first time they're under fire as this experience where they're dumbfounded, terrified, confused, shock. Dennis is all in. He's like, this This is what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to be a peacekeeper. I didn't sign up to be a cop. He, he doesn't have a very high opinion of cops. No offense to our BSAP friends, but he's not a... <laughs> he has some encounters with them later on. Well, he has an encounter very early on. He gets his shit kicked out of him. Mm. He's trying to sneak across the border. So, anyways, he... He loves it. He continues to be operational. At this stage, there is the the concept of fire force that we've come to know, which is like that vertical envelopment by helicopter troops, airborne troops, and ground elements, all in synchronization, surrounding the enemy, strangling them until they're a pink mist. That is not really a thing at this stage. The tactics are still very, very conventional because I, th- I think as well uh, the terrorist forces that were entering the country based off of their training at this stage from whether it be Soviet or Chinese military advisors it's still, or in, in, in some cases East Germany, you name it, some Eastern Bloc country, uh, I, w- I would say like and you, you feel free to disagree with me, Bindu, but I would say like they're conventional. It's a lot of conventional thinking in, in some sense. Yeah. Because they're coming is, in with groups of 50 dudes. Yeah, I think this is before um, this it was before the sort of guerrilla war tactics have been perfected. Like this yeah. early Cold War, very early Cold War. Yeah. Because I think 50 dudes is a lot of people to be trying to cross a border with. And that's how they're detected. It's like a big group of them. They're making a lot of noise. And Krokop goes over this like when he when he operates later later much much later on. We're talking like a decade from from this stage in uh, 1967 during Op Cauldron. He's operating with teams of I think like two three dudes. And there's 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 a there's at least one instance where the boss Ron Reed Daly is telling him you have to operate you know on this mission with four dudes or whatever, or five dudes. And he's like, that's too many. They'll know we're coming. They'll, they'll hear us. They, they'll, they'll, they'll pick up our spore, which is in, in tracking terms, spore is the evidence of your quarry, which is the, you know, whatever you're, you're chasing, right? Whatever you're tracking could be human, could be animal, whatever it is. It's your quarry. Spore is the hint that they're there whether it be footprint or disturbances or pointing or whatever uh, they they'll know they've been there with like five dudes and he's like no I'm, I'm I want to operate with like two dudes and that's why like guys like Schellenberg operated alone which is insane because that's not that's not conventional thinking at all it's like you know we leave no man behind and you know what was it? Uh, Some might even say that's asking for trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I think a lot of Western militaries now, and in, in the conventional doctrine, or, or even like in counterinsurgency warfare, they'll tell you we don't want Rambo's. We want people that can work as part of a team. And all this, you look at any special forces training doctrine now. They're looking for people that'll work well in the team. Mm-hmm. 
This is like the complete polar opposite. It's like, are you the psycho that'll go out alone and and get the job done however you can get it done, right? That, that was that was kind of Crocomp's mindset in some ways. Yeah, yeah and he was he was yeah. he was a very aggressive fighter. Um we'll we'll get to how he runs into issues with other people as a result of this cuz obviously this is not really Ro- this is not very Rhodesian in many ways cuz Rhodesians are still kind of old school certainly at this stage. But Crocomp's Crocomp's bloody aggressive. And uh again, involved in Op Cauldron 1967, 1968. That's kind of one of the turning points in his career cuz he he's a bit of a shithead early in his career he butts heads a lot with his seniority like senior leadership there are certain non-commissioned officers he doesn't really like certain officers he doesn't really like platoon he he runs into a lot of interesting issues he's a fierce individualist and doesn't do well with a lot of authority figures especially early on yeah he's not a garrison soldier he's a field soldier entirely he is a total breaking case of war kind of guy so you put this guy in a barracks and make him march around. He'll he will want to kill himself, yeah. but kill everybody else in the process too. So that he, that was that was that was Crocom. So he's not a sedentary person. He's mm-hmm. he's he's he wants to get out there, uh, and he really gets some, so to speak, during a battle in 1968, the Battle of Camp Five, where. Well, you know what? We'll let the Rhodesian government tell you what he did. So we'll pull up. We'll actually we're going to pull up a citation written by the Rhodesian government, recognizing his actions in 1968 at the Battle of Camp Five, one of many of these small pre-fire force engagements conducted by the Rhodesian military. It's, uh, page 147. On 18th of March, 1968, Lance Corporal Krukamp was a section leader in 13 Troop 3 Commando when the troop, together with a platoon of the 1st Battalion of the Rhodesian African Rifles, was fiercely engaged by a gang of over 60 terrorists in the Zambezi escarpment of North Mashonaland. The troop, numbering only 12 men, was pinned down on exposed ground on the side of a hill feature which the terrorists had used to establish a strong defensive position. Despite the heavy automatic fire at close range, Lance Corporal Crew Camp twice crawled forward towards the terrorist base and engaged them with grenades. This action taken on his own initiative and with complete disregard for his own safety enabled the troop to redeploy into better positions. Lance Corporal Crew Camp, again on his own initiative, then personally cited the troop light mortar detachment in a good position prevent any terrorist escape along the one flank of the area. Helicopter support was called for, but because of the close cover, the pilot was unable to pinpoint the enemy. Lance Corporal Crew Camp was therefore ordered to indicate the terrorist position with smoke grenades. This entailed crawling forward across ground, which was swept by heavy automatic fire to grenade throwing distance. Throughout the action, which lasted nearly six hours, Lance Corporal Crew Camp displayed outstanding leadership for so junior a non-commissioned officer and conspicuous gallantry under heavy fire. His courage, determination, and personal example were an inspiration to the whole troop. His prompt action in the initial stages of the engagement undoubtedly saved the lives of many of his comrades. That was a citation for Crocomp's 
Bronze Cross of Rhodesia action at the Battle of Camp 5. One of, honestly, one of his relatively minor engagements during that war. Personally, I think he deserved a lot more recognition for other escapades that he gets into later on. But in some ways, this kind of solidifies a little more trust in him as a soldier. Uh, it gets him a little more recognition in terms of his actions. There is a little bit of controversy initially during the engagement. I mean, at least in the immediate aftermath, because uh, I believe in this engagement, he's actually wounded. He takes a bullet to the ankle, and he remembers it kind of... It nails him. He goes all numb. He kind of clues into the fact that he's been hit, but he keeps on, you know, he just keeps fighting through it, through the adrenaline and stuff. And that, you know, that, that factored into his Bronze Cross of Rhodesia decoration. I feel he would have gotten a much higher award if the the, the, next, the following sequence of events didn't happen. Now, again, as I mentioned, he was a bit of a shit disturber. And there was a little bit of animosity between certain NCOs and junior soldiers and officers over his attitude, his kind of nonchalant attitude to military discipline. And they believed that rather than being wounded in the engagement, he had actually fired a round into the ground or at his foot and had nailed his ankle intentionally. Like he had, he'd tried to more or less chicken out of the battle. There was that accusation which kind of hurt him and very, very deeply that they had accused him of being a coward, which kind of haunted him in, in some ways for, for quite some time. Because there was a full investigation, because what, what ended up happening is right after he was wounded, out of the sheer luck, based off of how the ricochet went, because I guess this this round had ricocheted, he was actually able to dig it out of uh, the ground, because it like bounced off his ankle or some some. I don't remember the specifics. He goes into it in the book, but he ends up finding this round, the actual ball, like the, the you know, the bullet. For those that don't know how bullets work, get a clue. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. So not the cartridge, the, the, not the casing, like the actual bullet. He digs out the bullet, and he's like, oh, cool, and he keeps it as a souvenir. Behind his back, one of his seniors orders a African Batman to break into his, like, footlocker and recover this bullet because they wanted to prove that it was not an enemy AK-47, not a Eastern block round that had caused this injury. It was his own FNFAL. This was 308 or 762 NATO round that, that had caused the injury. And, they're you know, they did this whole investigation thing behind his back. It It damaged him. I think I think uh, I think that moment kind of damaged his perception of like military chain of command. I think permanently because he was already like really irreverent at this, and he starts kind of changing to be more. I'm fighting for Rhodesia, yes. I'm fighting also for Dennis Krokop. I'm not fighting for this unit or any political ideology because he doesn't get very. Dennis is somebody who you get the feeling from reading the book. He does believe, I guess, highly in the highly might be going a bit far, but he does yeah. believe in the cause. Like he does think the 
the Rhodesian army is fighting against communism for civilization in Africa. But he also has literally no respect or faith for the higher command. Yeah. Well, yeah. do you think? Well, I don't know. There's there's that moment. There's other moments, but in, you, you feel free to disagree with me. I think that was the moment that kind of changed him in, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally get the the view reading through the book that he is somebody who very much believes in the cause, but like many soldiers throughout history who've believed in causes, they think that the the people at the top could be doing a better job running the war. You think it's just you think it's just like a standard disillusionment because he's like on the like a non commissioned soldier, like a non commissioned like a junior soldier or I think it's something deeper. I think it's not just the standard I think it's that that attack on I don't really want to call it ego, but it's like it's his, it's his honor. Mm-hmm. It's actually like his honor. It's 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 a deeper, like a spiritual attack on him to accuse him, and you know, because he knows what happened. By the way, because he did eventually, it took a few years, but they eventually gave him this bronze cross of Rhodesian. I, I believe he was the first member of the RLI to receive this award as as a well non commissioned soldier. Right, he was just a regular enlisted soldier. It took, I think, four years or five years, because I think he's awarded it in 1973, and this battle happens in 1968. Regardless, they there's some clear issues between him and his chain of command, uh, and I think the worst thing you could do, and it comes up a few other times, is is accuse Krokop of being a coward, given um, given his whole mindset. Like he's like. He's he's about charging into battle. Doesn't even cross his mind he's going to die at any point, including the you know when he's wounded he he fights through it. When you can say that's adrenaline, but I think that's just crow comp, mm-hmm. right? Because he does it does kind of hurt. I think he talks about like it starts burning, but he's still like he's still in it. He's still hooked in. So I I think I think that it was at that moment like he kind of changes spiritually and. He, he he clues into his like his inner his inner Salute scout I guess, but that's a few years away. Yeah. <laughs> that's a few years away. We're not even at the Salute scout stage yet. He continues on after Camp Five, Op Cauldron, and there's there, again there's there's controversy. But at this stage in the war, like I mentioned, there's no Fire Force missions yet, and largely because they didn't really need to conduct Fire Force missions. One reason for that was these terrorists were still thinking relatively conventionally oh we'll send in a platoon of guys to deal with a platoon of Rhodesians well the Rhodesians can bear down an entire commando or troop or you know they, they not can, to mention they're much better trained and not to mention better weapons exactly they yeah I don't know about better weapons well when I'm talking better we weapons have discussion they have with air, Chris yes okay yeah but they have aircraft is what I mean yeah they, they, they have our yeah better probably support weapons. better comms that was yes. something that, yeah. that that Dennis talks about mm-hmm. they, have, they have like radio communications the terrorist groups had screaming <laughs> quite literally that was Te- their... telephone the little cans with the wire between them telephone. i don't think i don't think they were that technologically advanced um which it's not like the soviets didn't have radio equipment i just the soviets their chinese just didn't bother giving it to them well i don't know if the chinese did at this stage who knows i'm not an expert in my chinese military history 
contrary to popular opinion, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's. I don't think they had the tech, and they thought they could fight this like toe to toe, and yeah, it wasn't work. It didn't work out for them those first few years, and that's why the war remained low intensity because you'd have these fifty dudes, and they'd be highly motivated, highly trained. They'd go in like an op cauldron, and they just they maybe like attack a few farms. And there's several of these, you know, similar incursions early in the Bush War. And they just get their ass whooped. They lose a bunch of people. A bunch of people be maimed. A bunch of people be, like, crippled, whatever. Massive casualty. Very, very little effect on the Rhodesians for the amount of resources expended. And they had one over zero hearts and minds because they just attacked, like, a random farm or a random village or whatever. They didn't convince anybody. They had no internal network. They had no friends locally. They're in the boonies. Oftentimes, nowhere near any populated settlement or town or village or crawl. They're just trying to cause some mayhem on the border, and they, they get whooped. Reminds me a tiny bit of the Fenian raids in the yeah. 1860s yeah, Canada, they, where like they, just 200 yeah, drunken they, Irishmen would run across the Canadian border See what they burn can do. Burn a barn, yeah. get like shot at by a million redcoats yeah. and run back across the border. Like this is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And that's how that's how the war went for, for quite some time. So, for, you know, for that reason, uh, these Rhodesian troops oftentimes went across the border legally to what was Portuguese Mozambique. Well, you you have some you had some stronger opinions on that than I do, but we, we, we can get into his operations their joint operations with uh, the Portuguese in a moment, but that that's one of the tasks, I guess, that Procomp was assigned as a junior soldier. Like you're you're going with the Portuguese patrol here, here, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a, there's a few moments in the book where he he talks about these specific patrols and and the very very trigger happy Portuguese who mm-hmm. were actually, I guess towards the end of their their empire it was it was the end of portuguese africa they knew they were losing this war and discipline in many ways was starting to break down uh Crocom kind of observes this and yeah i, I mean you you're blabbing to me all, all day about this yesterday oh yeah well yeah the the portuguese troops as far as crew camp uh portrays them and again no offense, men. We haven't read anything about yeah, a Portuguese I, soldier. I've, yeah, where... I've read a few. I've read a few firsthand accounts, but they were always a very, very, very elite units, or the paranurses, uh, which I know quite a bit about. But those, you know, the paranurses obviously were non-combatants. Yeah. So we're not. Was... We're not meaning to impugn anyone's yeah. honor here, but um, from crew camps' uh, work. The Portuguese troops do not particularly come across that well. They come across as very not understanding the difference between civilian and guerrilla, to be perfectly frank. Yeah. There's a lot of civilian casualties and sort of shooting first and asking questions later. Uh, There is an incident where Frelimo guys have women and children in front of them, thinking that the women and children can form a human shield and the Portuguese wouldn't shoot and... That, that was not literally a, not the a, Portuguese uh, <laughs> laugh it off as they're blasting away, and and, yeah. and Crocomp is like holding his fire, and his patrol is like, what, like what the hell are these guys doing? It, it kind of goes against every bone in his body, and he recognizes like towards the end of the war, 
Um, this this did happen on the Rhodesian side as the war intensified and things got more and more dire and these terrorists were starting to really, really blend in with the local population because things start radically changing in Rhodesia over the, over the course of the next decade or so. But, I mean, those... Yeah, the Portuguese were getting a little trigger happy. And there to be no... fair, they, they lived in squalor compared to the Rhodesians. Not that the Rhodesian yeah. soldier was in luxury, but comparatively... They're living a lot better than these poor dudes that were pooping in, like, open latrines and like it, it was a like he described the living conditions on their base and they were not they were not pretty. There are no clean counterinsurgency yeah. wars. I'll simply say that. But I'd say for the Portuguese, by the end there, with the war being extremely unpopular back home, yes, and very much so. They were trying to defer a lot of the responsibility to the local Africans who also didn't want to be involved anymore because it, yeah. it was a long war for them. It was, like, it was a pretty long, long, bloody war. And there was already, I think, by the time of one of his patrols, like there there was like a coup attempt previous, prior to the Carnation Revolution, which eventually deposes the... The Estado the, Novo. The Estado Novo regime in yeah. Portugal. There was a coup before that. And, you know, you're like in... You're in Africa and you're, you're Portuguese... 19 year old and your buddies are just getting slaughtered because your chain of command doesn't know what it's doing anymore because that was something he talked about too like the portuguese were not performing like they were taking pretty ridiculous casualties and you're you're not necessarily there on your own free will and now you hear back home there's like a coup d'etat you're like what the hell am i doing here i've right. heard from a lot of portuguese and again this is an anecdote nothing i can like like secondary psych, yeah okay because yeah, we don't speak portuguese by the way yeah so. no heard from a lot that one of the main criticisms of the estado novo regime even today is how it handled the colonial war because a lot of the portuguese did not want it they wanted to just give up the colonies they were like the british and french are giving up the colonies why are we there well Antonio de uh, Salazar's government. Well, he died too. Yeah, he died in he died in I think seventy one. Yeah, believes that keeping the now there were economic and well, he, he re, was, other yeah. reasons to keep the colonies, but uh, there there was not a popular war back home at all. Yeah, yeah. We're we're no experts on the Portuguese side of it, but yes, it yeah. was not popular to say the least, and that you know the strong man had died, so that tends yeah. to happen to any authoritarian or authoritarian-ish regime. When the strongman dies, things don't yeah. things don't really work out. And he, yeah. you know, he did die. If you don't have a... Uh, if, if you have a king, you need a strong heir. And yeah. a government... The Estado Novo government did not have a strong heir after Salazar. If you want something fun, look up Charles II of Spain. You know about him, right? Habsburg jaw? Oh, yes. Yeah. Habsburg boy? So the the yeah. original Chad jaw. The original Chad jaw, yeah. Yeah. Don't actually look him up. You'll just get depressed. <laughs> but anyways, that being said, that, that the digression, um, the Portuguese do not perform well. They're a little bit trigger happy, and that goes against every bone in Crow Comp's body. As much as he is a get some kind of soldier, he still has a very, very professional code of conduct as a soldier. Like, you're not to shoot wounded prisoners. You're not supposed to shoot women and children. You're not supposed to, like, with the odd exception of immediate danger, you shouldn't really be schwacking people, whether that's, like, physically hitting them 
or shooting them or whatever whatever the case is or engaging an enemy right he has his own like kind of rules of engagement he, you know he's not he's not a he's not like a sociopath and he's not exactly antisocial he's not like crazy mm-hmm. right so that being said he has very very little tolerance for shirkers for people that are what's the word for people that'll malinger in battle like the Rhodesian African rifles at certain occasions Mm -hmm. during these early missions pre-fire force he's not super impressed with them early in the war through through his interactions Mm -hmm. simply and it's not because they're bad soldiers it's not necessarily because they're um and again you can we're, we're talking about this earlier but they wanted to fight the war on their terms and it wasn't exactly the same mindset the R- as the RLI. Now, we, you and I have some theories on this. Well, the Rhodesian but, African Rifles, which is most of our listeners will know, it was a black unit with some white officers. And as, it, was all, it was all white officers yeah, as because a, of the you know, Rhodesian Front until yes. 76, 77. Yeah. As opposed to the RLI, which yeah. was an all-white regiment. Um, for the RAR, even though much much of the RLI has grown up in Africa are, you know, true blue roadies and all that, the RAR, I think, had a more, a different perspective being, you know, black men living in black villages fighting black guerrillas. They probably had a different way of going about things and how they fought, felt the best way was to counter the guerrillas as compared to, as compared to the, the white Rhodesians. Not and again, not saying everybody, and not saying like all of the whites mm. were one mind, all the blacks. But you've mentioned before, for example, RAR figured like taking back the country village by village, while RLI was more in fire force yeah, missions. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd say that's a bit of a generalization. But, okay. Um, but I, I personally think that the RAR were probably still pretty aggressive, but just not aggressive enough. Because this is Crow Cop we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I, I've read I've read a few, like, secondary, very, very secondary sources, and they're not from, they're not veterans' accounts. They're always, like, some historian. There's very, I won't, I won't name who this guy is, but there is one guy out there on the internet that really, really hates the RAR. I suspect, because, like, honestly, I suspect, because he's, like, I don't know if it's on his website or not. I don't even know if his website's still around. This is a weird. He's a very strange man. Um, I, I think he's a man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he's just this online like kind of troll. But he, he's written like really supposedly research stuff saying like the RAR was a, a incompetent and and um, unmotivated. And I, I don't honestly I don't think that's true because yeah. there's there's also that pretty well known West Point paper um, written by I think he was like a PhD candidate at West Point a U.S. military officer talking about the RER is like no different than any other military unit. Why do people join the military? Well, it's regular pay. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not easy to find all the time, especially in our COVID world. Like, regular paid job with benefits for your family, three-year, four-year contract. Okay, that's not a lot of time. It's not like a Roman legionnaire signing yeah. 20 years away. Like, it's like, okay. That's reasonable. And I get benefits afterwards. There's an immediate like life insurance policy with the day I join in case something, something happens to me. And also, I'm a government employee. 
we're technically part of a union with guns, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's not that bad of a deal. That's why people join join the military. You're not um, – none of these guys at this point certainly were conscripts, so they're all volunteers, again, at, at this point in the 60s. But that being said, um, you know, I think these guys were motivated. There's some people that will still argue that they weren't. But I think as a regular unit, you got to be pretty motivated. You're a volunteer. And, and generally, most things we hear about the Rhodesian African rifles from veterans is that they were very a competent yeah. unit, and they were quite uh, yeah. good at what they did, to be honest. Also, and, I think this is, again, this is when uh, Crow Cop's dealing with them. It's the 60s still. Yeah. It's still 1960, like pre-73 when he joined. Because he joins the scouts when the unit is founded in, in uh, 1973, mm-hmm. right? So... Like, this is the 60s. Perhaps a lot of the NCOs were Malaya guys. And Malaya was, for those that aren't totally aware of the Malayan emergency in the 1950s, that was another counterinsurgency that a lot of Rhodesian troops were involved in, but it wasn't a gunfighter kind of war. It was a very different war. It was a very different war. Yeah, it was like we're going to village by village, root out the bad guys. Which, again, is how... Some of the RAR officers, as I mentioned, yeah, it's a lot thought, of, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, we're just gonna yeah. do what we did in Malaya, and that—that's what you know. We we talked to Chris about earlier um, mm-hmm. in our in our last podcast. Chris Cox, he mentioned that they they almost tried to replicate that war too closely to the Malayan emergency. Now, I think the biggest factor was they actually had terrorists coming externally from out of the country. They weren't like in the village all that they could melt away, they could disappear, they could go to Mozambique. Right, they can go to Zambia. They can, uh, they can go wherever. They have a giant continent, a continent basically, basically to recruit they, they, from. Yeah, they're dude all dudes all the way in Tanzania. Yeah, that's pretty damn far away. So you know they they can go anywhere, and uh, the Zamla and Zipper guys would often do that. And that's so the Malaya tactic of trying to go village to village doesn't necessarily work and having protected villages like works only to an extent and that you know they kind of needed to go outside of the Rhodesian state and you know Crocom talks about this again in his, mm-hmm. his whole assessment I don't want to split like you guys need to read the book to get we should also add a disclaimer um, Dennis Krukam speaks very highly of the black soldiers who are in the Salus Scouts it was oh more yeah the, yeah it yeah. was more there it wasn't the, the 60s Rhodesian. RER it's yeah. just the 60s RER yeah it wasn't that it was a black regiment it was just the regiment itself yeah. in the 60s is a problem with and I think well, later he, in the he book loves he loves a lot of the black troops he works with yeah. in, the, in the scouts because they're he's like they're a special breed they're the best of the best of the best you know they're yeah. they're like they're switched on when they do that salute scout selection and some of them like face some some wicked fears so anyways we we will get to that. <laughs> Let's talk about Lillowin Barracks. Yeah. Because that's another defining moment. There's a lot of these defining moments. And, like, we haven't... I know we haven't even read an excerpt here from the book in a while. Like, just get the book, guys. If you can find it somewhere. Yeah. I'm I'm hearing bad things. Um, Earlier on, I mentioned uh, it. you might be able to get it on Amazon. Nix that. 
I just no. checked. It's horribly expensive on no. there. No. <laughs> just, no, you're not. You're not gonna get yes. anywhere. Look, look rarer. Maybe yeah. eBay. <laughs> Maybe eBay. Maybe Mount Everest. Maybe. <laughs> I I have a copy. Just a copy at the top of Mount uh, Everest. Uh, yeah, you you have a copy. I have a copy. No, I don't. I don't even have a copy. Actually, My copy's on copy. loan. Your yeah. copy's on loan. So, anyways, come and find us. Come and take it if you want your own copy. Yeah. Um, if you can get your hands on this book, seriously, guys, you got to read it. So, Littlewin Barracks. He does some time in the RLI. Again, he's a bit of a shit disturber. He's not good in garrison. Bit of a party animal. Bit of a ladies' man. Bit of a ladies' man. He bit d- of a got likes to fight in the bar. A bar brawler. Yeah. yeah. Bar room so, brawler. Yeah, he's, uh, he's part of 13 Troop RLI. Oh, shit, we should talk about the... Right before he gets posted as an instructor to Lillowin Barracks, because basically the unit has enough of him, but like one of one crazy unit just to embody it was when he gets really really drunk, and there's a I think there's a bunch of people sleeping. In uh, this would have been I think it would have been Cranbourne. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is Salis- Salisbury or Cranbourne Barracks, but there's a bunch of dudes just like sleeping. He gets really drunk. He gets so drunk that he thinks that like for some reason all these guys are af- offending him or like I don't know back talking him or gossiping about him or something I'm not sure what's he's not really sure what's going through his mind he, and he's just completely shit faced he's so drunk that he walks in the barracks he sees this guy sleeping and he thinks they're like talking behind his back or I don't know and he gets offended and he starts punching these dudes <laughs> while they're sleeping it's dark there's no light so he's these guys are like what yeah. the fuck everybody's waking up and they're you know he just starts throwing fists he just starts throwing and then everyone's like by the end like all these guys that were previously sleeping are like fighting like each other and stuff and it just pandemonium and the next day they're like i think one of the 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 platoon commanders or an nco or something's like crow count please don't do that again (laughs) yeah (laughs) he just goes to show he had been in so much trouble at this point but he was such a good like field troop it's literally the song Ballroom Blitz in the middle yeah. of a Rhodesian barracks. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they're just like, <laughs> man, just please don't do this again. Yeah. So, anyways, camp he, in the back said everyone attack. <laughs> there's enough animosity that they're like we gotta get this guy the hell out of here because he is rising through the ranks. He actually becomes a sergeant mm-hmm. uh, within within because he, he served for a few years at this point. He goes kind of against his own will to become an instructor to new recruits that are national servicemen so like conscripts white conscripts that are there to do one year of national service and go back home and they're generally posted to the Rhodesia uh, Rhodesia regiment so he he's there not at his own unit anymore I think he's still wearing the RLI cap badge and stuff but he has no friends in this new place he doesn't really like he's like I want to get out in the field and he does this for about like a year and he's just he's not happy he's extremely annoyed and one day he decides I want to go back in the field and he he had put up like many 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 memos at this point begging to go back in the operational service area with his boys to do the you know badass door kicker stuff again well there's no doors to kick sorry that's a that's a 
that's a global war on GWAT. <laughs> yeah. That's a total GWAT thing. He wants to be a hard charger again, right? Yeah. He wants to be slotting something out there. Hmm. And he's now training new recruits, which he really doesn't enjoy, doesn't really want to do. I can imagine he was a cranky instructor. And one day, lying in bed, somebody comes up. It's like, hey, man, like, you, you, you got a lesson to teach. Like, where are you? Where, where were you? Hmm. It's like, recruits, uh, what the, what the you know, we're, uh, we're going to cuss a little more than normal because this is Crow He cusses a lot. In this yeah, Crow Camp cusses quite a bit. So they're like, where the fuck were you, Dennis? It's like, I'm not coming. And it's like an officer. He's just like, I'm not coming. He doesn't even say sir. He's just like, I'm not I'm not coming, man. I'm not coming, bro. It's like, no, like, you, dude, there's like recruits that, you know, because you can only imagine like Full Metal Jacket or whatever and or you know, any of these war movies where the drill sergeant or the drill instructor yeah. or whatever. Let like me that. see your war face, son. Except he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> he's just he's just left these this flock of geese to fend for themselves. They're like, what do we do? They would. I would be. No, no, honestly, I'd be scared shitless. I'd be like, oh, something's happening. Yeah. Fuck, he's fucking. The, 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 the base yeah. is under attack. <laughs> the base is under attack. He's he's deserted us. You know. So, anyways, that's it. Wasn't a good look, and they're like, holy shit, dude! Like, you need to get out. Like, are you refusing an order and stuff? And he's like, yeah, basically. So they're like, okay. So they march him into the CO of, I guess, the the base camp or whatever's office, and they're like, hey. So we're having this like court martial. We're not going to read it verbatim in the book. Get the book. Yeah. Like they're like, "Hey man, like you you need to be you need to start soldiering. Are you refusing to like soldier?" And he's just like, "Yeah." <laughs> Cuz I want to get back in the operational area. Let me go back." And they're like, "Okay. Well, uh Sergeant Crocomp, you have actually no authority to teach at this camp." Because uh, you did not actually take the you know drill instructor course, you did not take the troop training course. You're not actually qualified. You're an NCO, but you're not qualified to teach here. So you teaching here was actually a mistake. Also, you have made good uh, good faith efforts or whatever to like join your unit again in the operational area, namely as a member of the Rhodesian Light Infantry. You've made good faith efforts. And he was just like, yes, I like where this is going. And then and then he has a crow comp moment. <laughs> the officer's like, therefore, we are assigning you to take all of the courses that you will need to become an instructor. <laughs> and you're not going back to your unit for another year. And he's like, fuck. <laughs> and they march him back out. And he spends basically another year there. Um, doing all these uh, drill instructor course where he just kind of horses around and finally he's back as unit after like another year of and he's he just like I think he's just like I just wasted like two years and I, like he says like the job it wasn't an unimportant job because these guys were 18 year old wet behind the years kids that had zero experience that were going into this war that was slowly intensifying more and more and more every year. More and more people were dying every year. More and more people were getting maimed, slipping on landmines, getting shot. Uh, the black soldiers starting to get killed in their own homes. It was getting nastier and nastier, right? And he was like, I actually have some direct close quarters combat experience here's what I know. Here's what'll keep you alive. Here's what'll keep your buddies alive. 
here's how you do your Drake shoot tactics. Here's how you do um, your you know moving moving as a stick, uh, and you know eventually this, this develops into the the fire force tactics, mm-hmm. right? With with the four man sticks. This is your weapon system. This is how you operate it. This is how you maintain it. This is how you clean it. Like all that stuff is super super important for these guys that have no military experience and don't necessarily want to be there because they're they're conscripts, right? And the, you know, as as we learned from Chris Cox, some of these guys were probably trying to skip the country a few weeks before they were there. So yeah. like, not everybody wanted to be there. And he's like, "This is the shit." That's... So it's not like it was unimportant work, but to him, like he wanted to be operational. He literally went through the interesting effort of laying in bed and going like, "Nah, <laughs> I ain't doing that, man." So that just that's just crow comp. He returns and eventually. A certain, I think he's a major at this point, maybe a captain, or maybe no major. He must be a major at this point. Ron Reed Daly shows up, and he's an RLI officer that is aware of Crow Comp, and he asks Crow Comp, basically, "Do you want to be part of this new experimental unit?" And they just call it like the Recce Troop, it's just the Recce or, or Tracker Platoon or something, right? It's all kind of hush I don't think he even states what the actual unit is called. He's just like, you you any part of something. Something, something new. He's not exactly sure what, but he's like, yeah, like I'll I'll be part of um I'll be part of this unit. What's it entailing? He's like, well, we gotta we have to do some sort of like a selection course. You're gonna be on the first selection course to select the best troops out of various elements of the Rhodesian security forces. So that's Air Force, Army, BSAP. We're taking everybody, national service, volunteer, doesn't matter. We're taking everybody. And uh, Crow Comp's like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm on board. And he, he does this course, which entails a typical rucksack marches, um, sleep deprivation, a little bit of starvation, a little bit of water aptitude so they they do some uh some canoeing across lake kariba uh it's a a pretty difficult course and he's like yeah this is a little hard and normal but he you know he's a he's a soldier so he's he's clued in he's he's done his time already and he he knows what's up and he kind of flies through this course and this course basically becomes the basis as the first ever course for the salute scouts the legendary salute scouts and later on they they incorporate the famous rotting baboon that the troops have to eat as part of the course so they, they take it they take a dude out one of the candidates they take him out and they make him especially if he's like a, like a hunter he's got a hunting background they're like go hunt a baboon buddy brings back a baboon thinking he's gonna eat it and they're like okay hang it up he's like okay that's standard now what get back to the course and then they keep doing this course until like this baboon is falling apart and decomposing. <laughs> and then they're like, cool, now you can eat the baboon. And it's like the first food they've had in days or whatever. So that's that was part of the old Salu Scout course. And they did the stand you know, the standard I think at that stage they still did the standard uh you're at the end of the actual course. Like you've made it to the very, very end, and they tell you, okay, you gotta march another like ten kilometers or some shit. You gotta march like further. I know we said the course is over, but it's not. And then some people just quit right then and there because they're mentally broken. They're like, shit, this is bullshit. That, this happens in Crow Comp's course. You remember he's at the end? 
and I think it was like one guy who was literally like, they're like, okay guys, I know we said the course was over, but we need you to march in their 10k, and this guy just mentally quit, he's like, fuck this, he dropped his bag, he's like, yeah. fuck this, I'm going, I'm fucking going home, and he walks off, I'm like, cool, you failed the course, the rest of you passed, good job. Just like that, it was all about that mental resilience, and obviously, Crocomp, having already been in combat, and I mean, he was already ballsy enough to just stay in bed while he's a instructor at <laughs> Lillowin uh, Barracks. He's uh, he's more than happy to to rip through that course, and he becomes one of the like founding members of the legendary Salute Scouts. And right away, he's put into pseudo operations, which I don't I don't think we've discussed in the not, past. Not much. Yeah, because no. we talked about the Fire Force side of the war, which is the conventional side, which was. The enemy's here. We know where they are. This is how we're going to nail them. Parachute right? in, take them out. Parachute in, helicopter in, boom, they're gone. They're, you envelop and turn them into a pink mist. The pseudo-ops war was very, very different. It basically entailed black and white operators, and well, mostly black. And like, I was mentioning water aptitude earlier. A lot of these black soldiers were very very scared of the water okay rhodesia is a landlocked country let's be real like yeah. i give these guys as much break, as that sounds like a stereotype as much as it sounds like a stereotype it's yeah it's not true because like you go to certain places in africa like there are very strong swimmers yeah. and there's fishermen and there's a maritime culture there's no maritime culture in zimbabwe no it's a right? landlocked country it's a landlocked country so these people are like terrified unless you and, live right on the river you're not gonna yeah. be a strong swimmer oh even then there's the incident with the with the old man yes. later on when when uh when sad story yeah when yeah. dennis is operating in mozambique yeah this this old guy that he befriends actually he's actually like pretty good friends with and he becomes like an informant for him uh he falls overboard in a in like a just a freak accident uh, yeah it's like a freak accident while he's like with the sas he's yeah like, the canoe over flips and the, and the two other guys survive but the old man they just they just swim back to shore but the old man who's a fisherman like panics and drowns in this relatively slow flowing river yeah because he just so panicked about being in the water that he he, he drowned and you know he's, he's an older man too but that's that's a story we got but that being said uh you know kudos to the dudes that because the vast majority were scared of water. You know, they bit their tongues and they went on Lake Kariba day after day doing all the stuff required of them on the selection course. All that water aptitudes of swimming and canoeing and all the rest. And uh, pretending like it was nothing, even though Dennis could kind of tell, like, these guys were tripping balls <laughs> on, the, on the water. But, they, you know, the, the credit to those black operators that went through that course because they went through all the same starvation and tribulation and ruck marches and psychological torture and being yelled at and screamed at and then you have to face your biggest fear ever that you've like never never dealt before which is like completely alien and, and foreign to you so you have a unique body of men that result at the end of that course and dennis is part of this this unit that most of the time he's talking about going to mozambique they cross the border and the pseudo operations different differ from the conventional operations in the sense that they're they're almost like deniable. You don't really exist. They're very secretive. You go in basically impersonating the enemy. And you do whatever you do normally to disrupt their operations as much as the enemy would try to disrupt your operations. You are the enemy. 
to your enemy. Yeah. Like it, it was, it was like that. This mindset they they had a t- like like reverse terrorism yeah, mindset. B- basically, black soldiers and white soldiers who had blacked up faces using um, masunga masunga, which they uh, called. They, they used to joke, uh, "Black is beautiful," right? Black is beautiful. Yeah, they, they the just called it nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah. uh, so I think they were using like charcoal initially, and then they used um, they used uh, boot black. Yeah, but. It kind of didn't stay on, and the South Africans, in their infinite wisdom, came up with this really, really smelly cream called like the Masunga cream, which is basically some like very carcinogenic camouflage paint that you would get on your face, and it would stay there for like days. Yeah, and uh, fun experience. Well, I'd love to get some on my face because I've never, I've had, I've had charcoal on the face before. I've had boot black on the face before. But Masunga, that would be an experience. Be like smoking thirty cigarettes at once every two minutes, and you have it on your face. But anyways, uh, like the Masunga stuff basically made these guys, in addition to very bushy beards, very wide floppy hats like boonies. That's why they wore them to cover their eyes because, like you know, the, the the facial feature of the eyes would give the white guys away as, um, yeah, or if they had you know blue eyes or, or something they had blue eyes like or that, something yeah. or blonde hair or whatever. So yeah. they just they just appear scraggly and not well, just not white. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was not non-European. Like yeah. they would literally look look like a wild man of some sort, and uh, yeah. the the obviously the the black soldiers did not put this masunga yeah, they, camp cream yeah. okay just the, i know that it's probably self-evident but they they didn't need to because they're someone will ask that question <laughs> yeah someone will ask like what's on your face <laughs> so the, these dudes are are operating behind enemy lines oftentimes going into terrorist bases and and there's uh i think stretch stretch franklin who he talks about this really really tall guy stretch he had a habit of wearing this really, really wide brim floppy hat, which covered his eyes. He's a very tall dude. And him and a, a black Salute Scout operator, sometimes uh, they also worked with these guys called TTs, the Tamed Ters, which are tamed terrorists, I guess. This is what it's, terrorists like. who defected to the road. Yeah, they're basically. defected. Now, some of them are not willing defectees. Some of them are literally <laughs> there like with leg shackles on, and others are like, like, Fuck Mugabe, fuck Nakomo. Yeah. Excuse my French again. This is Crocon. We're talking. I cuss yeah. a little bit. Uh, like these guys are are there for for the show because they hate communism. Because they, you know, a lot of them they might have gotten their ass kicked at Op Cauldron for all all we know, and yeah. we're just like, this is not sustainable. I'm not cannon fodder. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'll... sure this was the mindset of, of a lot of these guys who were defecting because they were being treated like cannon fodder. Yeah, and a lot of Zanu and Zapu guys Expendable. were also forced into at gunpoint, yeah, or yeah. or you know families were held hostage or something. Yeah, so yeah. So at a certain point, you just you're no longer sympathetic to your captor. Stockholm yeah. syndrome can only go on for for so long. So the yeah. you know for whatever reason, a lot of these guys defected, and your Salute Scout team would sometimes have a tame turn and sometimes a few black operators one white operator maybe two white operators depending on the needs but stretch with his one black operator buddy would go in behind enemy lines and his black friend would you know he you'd be able to see his face he'd take off his hat he'd be like you know hello comrades going to like a Frelimo base or a zanla base 
one of these terrorist groups, these communist terrorist groups, and he'd be like, hey, like, this is my buddy so-and-so. And he, like, introduced him with, like, an African name, right? And then the terrorist, like, commander would be like, hello, brother, and they'd shake hands. And Stretch had a hell of a fucking grip. Yeah. And he'd pull the guy in. And he'd pull out a forty-four mag, and I'm like, nice to meet you too, motherfucker. You're coming with me. <laughs> I'll stretch. This is how their war was fought. <laughs> it was yeah. it was sneaky shit like this. Um, there, there was a, I, I guess, relatively limited like chemical warfare too. Dennis doesn't get any exposure to it. As far no, as I know. None, he doesn't. Yeah, none at all. Through Special Branch, which was like an affiliated unit with um. With the, with the scouts, like their, their special branch, it was happening. Basically, any deviant thing, like we, we talked about it in podcast one and two. If you guys haven't listened to that already, that's uh, that's Fire Force episode one and two of this podcast, mm-hmm. which are probably our shittiest podcasts, but they were our first go. <laughs> they were our first go. But that being said, like there was use of genes. That were poisoned with like ricin and stuff, and then when yeah. the terrorists put on the genes, they would like die. chemical and biological agents, yeah. mainly chemical, were added to right clothes and objects that'd be left in areas with terrorists. By by the way, we terrorists. yeah yeah by the by the way we'll we'll have to definitely review that. There's there is a book on it. Yeah, the um, dirty explain war. the dirty war. Yeah, we'll have to definitely look at that by by Glenn Cross. But but that being said, like. Crow Cop Swore wasn't really that. It was it was still sneaky though. Yeah. It was just, it just the reason why we talk about this is just to give you the mindset. These guys were were very, very sneaky. And they they'd go out and do shit like this. And um Yeah, I, I think uh this is how Crow Comp in, in one of many operations ends up getting compromised. Because obviously you're now operating behind, well, first up, behind enemy lines in a very austere environment with very little backup or backups like really, really far away. And um, during one of these missions where it's actually a attack, less so as like a pseudo-op, but it was a little more conventional, but there was a pseudo side to it where he'd cause basically a diversionary strike um, to allow for a Canberra bomber to airstrike a certain base, followed by an artillery strike, followed by this like RLI attack. He was going to derail a train that would have um, brought reinforcements to this like RLI base and like divert attention while the artillery and the air force and the RLI did their their fire force stuff, which kind of conversely from uh, Chris Cox's story. Crocomp is not involved in a lot of fire force missions. His whole war becomes the, these pseudo ops from 1973 onwards. So he's his mission again to derail this train, and uh, I think this is where th- this is the part of the book that I think I probably had to read this like three, four times. I had to keep going back to it honestly because it's something. And th- this is this is really again get this book. <laughs> If you can, <laughs> if, if you can, you, you gotta, you gotta check this book out for just if not, for nothing else, but for this account of his six days and two hundred kilometers behind enemy lines. Well, he wasn't two hundred kilometers. I think he's probably hundred kilometers behind enemy lines. 
but he ends up traversing 200 kilometers because he has to like backtrack and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, he's he's about to blow up this train. There are the train tracks, and his buddies are setting up the wire and stuff. And due to certain logistical issues and poor planning, not necessarily their own fault, uh, these guys run out of water. Now, the human beings can survive about a month, right? I think it's like three weeks, four weeks. Quite a while without food. But water? Three, three four days. Three, four days. Um, not even not even four, no. Three days. Four if you're extremely tough individual. If you're like a sumo wrestler with body reserves of water. Yeah, I mean, three for the average human being, yes. Yeah. And but, you'll go nuts long before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just yet. Yeah, yeah. Three days without water, you're going to you're gonna die and these guys i think were on day two or like they actually no i think they had they'd, they'd been staking it out for six days but they ran out of water and they were crow comp actually took pictures of this op amazingly enough he has the pictures and you can see the one guy's like smiling but it's a like death smile and the other the other buddy of his was um the other operator was like let's just say he wasn't all there in the picture and you can tell like he was not it's like, why are you photo... Like, I, I want to die. The situation is not good when there's no water. It's just beyond question. So, Dennis, without a radio, goes out and tries to get some water for his team because they're like, they're, they're dying. And he, he steps out with, he says like f almost 15 water bottles in his backpack. And he starts filling them up. He gets them all filled up and he starts like humping them up this hill and he finds like he's starting to get really weak and um, he he's kind of like getting like confused and lost on the way there. He doesn't remember really remember where he is because again he's like dehydrated at this point, starting to get a little delirious because things are starting to go bad uh, and it's almost D-Day because you know they say at this specific point like this op is going to go down D-Day, you guys are going to blow up this train while we already strike here and airstrike here and fire force here has to be synchronized right so they want to be on time the train that they are expecting a little later suddenly shows up right and then I, I guess they attempt to detonate the tracks it doesn't quite work because of the way that the Rhodesian engineers or Corps of Engineers had had I guess planned the de uh, demolitions, demolition charges or whatever that they'd given to the uh, sorry Salute Scouts, and this train doesn't blow up. It just kind of flies over the der derailed track. A second train goes over, and, and it just it just like for Lima knows what's going on. Someone tried to blow up their track. Someone tried to just kill them all. They're pissed off. They start dismounting. A, a truck shows up full of Frelimo troops, pissed off, looking for Salute Scouts dudes. And here Crocomp is. He's not sure where his team is. He's armed only with a silenced 9mm Uzi, which, in his opinion, was entirely useless because it was, it was basically like shooting paintballs at people because the subsonic rounds plus silencer or suppressor... Uh, just doesn't have the stopping power to bring people down so this thing was basically useless he just thought it was cool because it's quiet but he was just like man I'm 
I'm about to get in like a wicked gunfight. So he runs back to where he finally finds his like where his buddies firmly were, and he, he I remember he finds a bit of food and a few supplies, and he's like, "Man, they've they've bugged out. They left a lot of my stuff here." So he starts like dumping any unnecessary stuff. He has this water with him, and uh, very quickly, like these guys start start giving chase. And initially, like he's looking for the tracks of his teammates, trying to find his other two teammates in the bush. And he's like navigating. And at the same time, he's seeing the tracks of the enemy, like spore and evidence that the enemy is looking for him at the same time. And these tracks are all intersecting. It's one big zigzag. And at the same time, he's also trying to counter-track or anti-track to throw off his own tracks. You know, he employs certain tactics and turning, you know, sharp turns and stuff just to make it confusing for the enemy to try to track him. At the same time, he's trying to track his teammates and it's this big, crazy game of cat and mouse. He's completely lost in this point. And he's completely lost. And he, like, is, he's still kind of keeping his bearings. He knows which direction roughly he's going. Mm-hmm. But that's about it. He doesn't know exactly where he is. And he's thinking like, Okay, I got a signal to the Air Force where I am. I got. I don't have a. There's no radio right now. I have a little bit of tiny bit of food. Oh, shit! Ton of water. <laughs> yeah, that was the one good. That was thing. the one good thing. Yeah, he yeah, had like he had all a this lot of extra water. water. He was not gonna die of thirst out there. Yeah, his buddies though. <laughs> Anyways, well, they they write their own accounts in in the book, and if you want to read those, you'll have to, because his buddies, his two buddies, do make it out relatively unscathed all things considered they don't have to deal with what crow comp deals with they get picked up a little earlier but you'll have to read the book if you want those accounts because those are those are they actually are speaking in their own like words in the book and uh crow comp like he doesn't add any commentary he's just like this is what included he just is straight up included their full account right of i think both i think both the operators if i remember correctly or at least one of the operators that was that was there with them, and I think the signal operator, uh, Kevin Thomas, who was present and like hearing all the radio traffic as this was going on. So, Crowcomps officially like missing because they they missed all the radio checks for for the day and stuff. And the emergency procedure was I think if you miss two radio checks, like you're just you're missing in action. So he's he's missing at this point, uh-huh. and. They kind of know this, and they're 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 actually searching for him. They've already started kind of, I think within the second day, third day, they start searching for him. He's more or less still running the whole time. But by running, I mean like escaping. He's not actually like sprinting or anything through the jungle, right? He just he says that even like the best troop at the weight that they were carrying, you could be the fittest person in the world. It's not going to work out for you because you're just going to get exhausted. And throughout this kind of three, almost three day period, it's like 36 hours. He's not sleeping. He is switched on. He's switched on, uh, in his, in his own words, the, the only real enemy was, well, like his mind. It wasn't, it wasn't the bush. So again, in his own words. With that second day on my own now behind me, I walked slowly through the night often pausing to listen to the night sounds. My only real enemy was my own emotions and mind. However, 
Not once during my evasion of the enemy did I feel the loneliness that I had experienced when I first moved to Salisbury after joining the army. The loneliness of being surrounded by people that you did not know, aggravated by not being able to talk to anyone on a friendly or intimate level, was real loneliness, the loneliness of the big city. Here deep in enemy territory, although all alone, I felt no loneliness because I had the friendly bush around me, my world. My world. Friendly bush. My world. That's badass. That is very badass. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's what we I thought when I was reading it. Sorry, this was so this was this was day two when he says this. Not not uh, not day three. I think day three. We'll get there in just a sec. I know I know you you're you're itching to read it. But day three is uh the squirrel. Yeah. I, I don't know if you need to read that that extra. I can I can just describe it. It's it's yes. very it's very straightforward. Uh, but you know day three. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't slept in 36 hours. And, again, like, the only enemy is, like... His own thoughts, basically. His own thoughts. and But he says, like, when he was in Salisbury, when he was in Lillowin Barracks and stuff, like, he was lonelier there than at any other point in his life. And he was, like, sadder there when he was, like, in a, in a big city. And there's no friendly faces to talk to. No one's sociable. And uh, things are... Things are tricky. They're not as simple as they are in the bush. And so the bush is his world. And I think that's just that that statement like embodies Crocop, right? The bush this was my world. The bush my world. Mm-hmm. So that being said, uh, as a expert bushcrafty type person, he sees a squirrel on his third day. And his initial thought is like I can't be that hungry. <laughs> that thing's cute. Quite literally, he's 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 a, he's yeah. kind of struggles with, and then he's like, my stomach like quickly corrected me, and he pops the squirrel with his uh, suppressed doozy. Mm-hmm. And he remembers like, even though it was suppressed, the sound of the the breech like clicking and clanking back and forth as the round goes off. That's yeah, probably the loudest. Sound That's in the a jungle. loudest sound in the jungle. He's like sketched out by just that sound of like yeah. the you know that little little pop. Not even the you don't you probably don't even hear it. it's because it's a subsonic round with a suppressor it's like the nine mil which is this big so I don't think it was that loud but he he probably to him it was a grenade go you know an artillery piece going off it was uh, what's what's the giant like a big Bertha gun as far as he was concerned <laughs> German rail gun German rail gun so he, he fires this thing off he shoots a squirrel and he talks about this a few times in, in the book like he never after his time in Rhodesia he never ever hunts ever again because he just feels like animals are or he doesn't he doesn't like hunting because he just feels animals are helpless after having compared hunted, to humans compared yeah. to humans who he's hunted he hunts many many times yeah. <laughs> he's like man these things are harmless yeah. and they can't they can't shoot at you he's it's your, funny. this feels bad so yeah. he it's weird yeah he's just like because most people who go into like a survival situation in nature come away with a lot more respect for how weak people are in the face of yeah. nature but he, he crew camp the mad naked. lad comes back by saying naked. i can kill anything in nature only other men i have to fear yeah <laughs> Just... yeah basically he's not he's not afraid of the animals he's not and you know long before this there are like lion attacks multiple lion <laughs> attacks elephant attacks rhino attacks crocodile attacks crocodile like there hippos, are hippos like, I don't know if there's a hippo incident in the book is there 
Not in the book, but there must have had. There must have, been, yeah. yeah. But there's definitely. I think there's Crocs. There's there's a definite. There's a whole section dedicated to a guy in the RLI attacked by an elephant. There's a there's the engineer um, sergeant major who's like eaten by a lion. Like there's all kinds of crazy animal stories in the throughout the book. So mm-hmm. the squirrel is honestly the least interesting, but in the context of the E and E. This squirrel throughout this like 36 hour period, because the last time he ate was basically when he discovered buddies are gone. They left a little bit of food behind. He grabs that. I guess he like kind of scarfs it down immediately and just bugs out. I don't know if he even has time to scarf it down. So last time I guess he sees food. I don't know if he eats food. But I think in general, it's just a very shitty situation, right? Regardless of whether or not he ate last at that stage or had water refilled, after 36 hours, constantly on the move, not sleeping, knowing that the enemy is hot on your tails and at certain points, like, he can hear them and stuff and he's crossing their tracks, they're crossing his, he's crossing his buddy's tracks and he basically completely loses his buddies, loses loses track over this three-day period. And again, he sees a squirrel, and he's like, I can't, I can't possibly be that hungry, and immediately shoots the squirrel, boils the <laughs> sucker right away, and literally starts eating every bit of this squirrel, including the bones. Like, he's like, he, he recalls, like, breaking apart the bones in his mouth. Sucking and, the marrow. And sucking the marrow out. Like, he was, I, I don't know if he was sucking, I think he was eating the bones, man. I think he was, like, boiling the bones down so he could, like, eat them. Like, he was... From my what I understood, now he could be describing, because he just says, eats the bones. That can be interpreted as eating the marrow. That can also be interpreted as he is <laughs> grinding these bones down out of desperation. <laughs> Regardless, he's hungry, and he's like, this is the best meal I've ever had. Yeah. Thank God for that little squirrel. Um, but at this stage, because of the, first off, the hunger pangs are starting to kick in mentally he's starting to get a little loopy because he he feels the loneliness of the city actually no he mentally he's still okay i think at this point because again the bush is his place right Mm -hmm. his mind is starting to bug him a little bit he's starting to think a little bit about home a little bit about his wife and stuff but he's like honestly the physical stuff right now is still more more pressing fiance technically isn't he not married yet yeah, he's not married yet, so his wedding's in three weeks at this stage. Yeah. Fun, Great fun, time to take a jaw <laughs> to the woods. Fun, funny enough, uh, his he talks about like every woman he like ever slept with in the book, almost. Like, it's yeah. tic- it's kind of crazy, but anyways, he fi- <laughs> there's like entire chapters dedicated to certain women. I won't get into it, but when he gets down to his wife, who eventually marries. There's like a sentence like, also, I met my future wife, Sue. (laughs) He talks about this whole, I think is like a section with like skydiving. And he's like, I met my wife, Sue. And that was that. And it was just like, he was, um, but I can't tell if that means he's got more respect or I I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to get anyways. (laughs) Sue actually thinks that when it is, cause she's a, um, I guess like a telephone operator or some, some sort of radio operator, crypto operator, something, something, some sort of operator at, uh, administratively at the Sleuth Scouts. 
She's not, I don't think she's military, but she's she's just helping the Slew Scouts mm-hmm. with these. And she's she's the, not she's not RWF. Or... I don't believe so. Okay. It just I think she's a civilian. Um, she finds out pretty early on like Dennis is missing, and her initial thought is. He's just skipping out on this wedding because apparently he's done it a few times to her and multiple other women. So anyways, like she, that was her because she like goes to the to this like operations officer. She runs out of the room after finding out from from Ron Reed like yeah, uh, Sergeant Sergeant Crowcomp, your your fiance is missing in action. We believe he may be like dead or tortured or captured in Zim- or Mozambique. She runs out crying and he's like. He's trying to get away from the wedding. That's her initial <laughs> thought. And she's like sobbing. The guy's like, no, no, no. And I think he's legitimately lost. Yeah, no, no, no. no he, he's, he's just, you know, in a terrorist camp as a... As a prisoner. As a prisoner. Yeah. Probably being zapped with wires or something. Yeah, so... so it just it just shows Crow Comp. Crow Comp was a character. So anyways, he... Uh, he's, he's fucked at this stage. He's starting to get, like, loopy physically and it gets to a point where he just he can't he can't keep up this walking pace anymore he actually estimates i think he's, he's saying like three three to five kilometers so he's like a pretty quick walk pace he's alternating three to five kilometers an hour his feet are starting to kill him so he pulls out this this dagger and and sorts out his feet so you yeah we'll we'll, we'll read that section Shortly after daybreak, I inspected my heels again and came to the conclusion that it was the pressure of the body fluids and the blisters that was causing the pain. Taking out the dagger and using its nice sharp point, I broke open the four blisters. The relief from the pain was instantaneous and I slept for the first time in four days. My sleep was so deep that if I had been found, carrying me off or cutting my throat would not have woken me. Man, it was a good sleep. Waking at mid-morning, I decided to continue westward, still staying in the hills. By late afternoon, my heels were hurting like hell again. Taking off the boots yet again, I discovered that my feet were one bloody mess. The loose skin that had remained after the blisters had been opened now had been rubbed off, leaving open wounds. On the outside of my right heel, I could see to the bone. The scars on my heels are still visible today. I examined the mess and tore strips from the ground sheet, and I attempted to bandage them. But then I could not get my boots on again. I eventually had a brainwave and used the dagger to loosen the soles from the uppers of my boots and then tore the soles free. Tearing more strips from the ground sheet, I bandaged the soles of my books onto my feet, leaving the sides of my heels open. Thereafter, I continued westward on my homemade sandals, continuing with what had now become a painful slog. Moving on to a very wide vlay, running back into the hills, I made much better time. For those of you listening... Because only I think your buyers club is ever going to be able to watch the video. That uh, Bindu physically cringed reading that. Like it's yeah, it's it's yeah, nasty thought. He could see the bone on his yeah, heel, that, yeah, ankle. Yeah. yeah, well, just a man literally performed emergency minor surgery on his feet and then cut up his shoes and turned them into sandals, makeshift sandals, because he couldn't get his boots back on. Yeah, so he, yeah. he cuts out the soles, he sticks them under his feet, wraps a bandage around now. He's in a rush at this stage, and he ends up, of course, falling asleep, right? He's in a serious, serious rush. So he, he ends up not doing that good of a job wrapping these these uh, bandages around his foot. Basically, this makeshift sandal thing falls off because he doesn't 
tie it very well. And he starts getting like rocks in it and stuff, and it just starts. He when the next time he checks his feet, there's just what was formerly like this, like the skin that was there from the blister, is just gone. It's just this whole foot's just one mess. It's this raw mess entirely. That sounds like how my father describes kicking footballs in college. Yeah. Yeah, my father's a bit of an exaggerator. <laughs> what a pussy. Yeah. Man, yeah, there's just nothing left of of this with both of his feet, so he's like, shit, this is not good. But you know what he does? He he cracks on. Yeah. This is day four. The only thing he's eaten is at day three, he's eaten the squirrel. And um he cracks on. And now, because he's starting to really slow down, he's moving, you know, he's making time still. He's still like, he's still directionally, he knows where he is. He still has situational awareness. He's still listening for the enemy and stuff. He's not really, in his mind anyways, he's not making mistakes. He's not clueless. He's not lost. He hasn't lost his bearing. But at the same time, the enemy's starting to catch up to him, right? The enemy is starting to catch up to him. And he gets into a few firefights. The first few, the enemy just start. I think the first shot is a flintlock musket from this, like, hunter or something. This this local. I don't know if he's even a terrorist, but he just sees this guy and he's like, what the hell? And he fires at him. Probably they didn't even think he was human. <laughs> yeah, probably what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, you know, what? what is this, what is this Sasquatch? So... That's the first contact. It doesn't really go well for him. He just runs away. He just books it and then starts walking again. And then he's shot at multiple times now by like AK fire. You know, the, the, the intensity of the fire that's coming towards him, shots cracking around him are starting to get crazier. And he, he starts bugging out until finally um, he encounters at, at one point over walking across a plowed field a bunch of uh, terrorists, three f- possibly for limo fighters. We're not, we're not sure. He's, I think they're in for limo greens. They are looking for him, but these guys are a little bit nonchalant. And uh, for the first time throughout this period, he starts kind of fighting back. He doesn't go well. He gets the drop on them. It doesn't go well for him though. I was about to start going east along the base of the escarpment when I suddenly heard voices. <clears throat> Peeping over the rather long grass, I saw three guys walking towards me across plowed land. All three had AK-47s, their weapons slung. I was sure they had not seen me, but if they continued in that direction, they would walk right up to me. I knelt down and could see them through the grass, two of them walking abreast and the third one slightly behind. I stood up and having put a magazine of subsonic rounds into the Uzi, I opened fire at about five meters and gave each one a short burst. It automatically caught them by surprise that they stood for a split second, allowing me to give them a second short burst, each aimed at the chest, before they reacted to my starter pistol. They took off in the direction from whence they had come, and I continued shooting at them for the next 30 meters or so till the magazine was empty. The Uzi with subsonic ammunition was absolutely useless unless the muzzle was put against the person's head, although I imagined that those three were hurting. When still together with Rob and Paul, while moving from the DZ to the railway line, I'd shot at a guinea fowl. 
The silence round was so useless that the bird, after being hit, shook its feathers, gave me a dirty look, and walked away, not even flying. I often wonder what the three thought of the weapon with no sound. They had made no attempt to shoot back. As they ran away, I saw the AK-47s bouncing on their backs. In future operations, I never again carried the silent doozy. <laughs> yeah, he was not a particular fan of that gun. Yeah. He literally had time to line up shots, center a mass, and in the movies, these guys would have been blown away, right? In any other action movie. But unfortunately, this was real life, and this was a subsonic 9mm round. These guys took it, treated it like a paintball round, and were like, ow, and <laughs> they, they got... they got, just get were, stung by a bee. <laughs> yeah, they got, they got so spooked that they didn't even have time to take the AKs off their back. They just booked it. They just turned around and booked it. And the last thing he sees is just uh, is the AKs bouncing on their packs. Oh man, you guys got to read this book. I've been—I sound like a broken record at this point, but you got to read you this do. book. Yeah, <laughs> fucking crazy. And finally, after all these escapades, all these gunfights and craziness, zigzagging, zigzagging the whole time, going back into Mozambique deeper to throw off the enemy because they know he's trying to go for the border. Because the moment he's in the South African border or the Rhodesian border, he's safe. Well, theoretically, like he, he can find help. Yeah, relatively safe. Relatively safe. In Mozambique, he, no one is a friend. Also, it's not developed and it's like a jungle, right? He's mm -hmm. like in a teak wood jungle. They're, it's heavily forested. Yeah. It's not really like Rhodesia at all. It's like it's, it's a different biome and he's he's like gonna die right and the terrorists that are pursuing him the Zanli guys and the like for Limo at this point which is like a conventional force have armored vehicles they have tracker dogs they tracker teams they have local hunters local knowledge they know everything and they're coming close to sniffing him out and Crow Comp's pretty clever because he's zigzags back into Mozambique just to throw them off just to be like why is he going this direction? Is he really lost? But he, he knows what he's doing. Finally, he makes it to this place and he, he recognizes it. It's this place called Crook's Corner. I, I think it's like a fence post almost. And it just indicates like, this is Rhodesia. This is the border. This is, this is God's country, right? Not that there's going to be friendly elements here, but you've made it. I eventually arrived at the border fence and came out at the corner beacon known as Crook's Corner. I climbed through the fence and at the moment my emotions overtook me and I cracked. I lay behind the fence crying and repeatedly shouted, Come get me, you cunts! If they had heard me, I would have been as easy meat as before. The psychological effect of the fence gave me a false sense of security. I just lay there, eventually going quiet and just lying there sobbing. It was now six days since I had last seen my two teammates. For the first time since walking away from them, I felt a strange calm and an even stranger feeling of loneliness came over me. I needed company, someone to talk to, someone friendly. The feeling and emotion of intense loneliness was something I had never felt before or since. I thanked God for delivering me this far and asked him to deliver Sue a healthy baby even if he saw fit to take my life, even at this late stage. I fell asleep in the now steady rain.
Oh yeah, his fiance was pregnant. Yeah. So you can only imagine your mental state at this point. Yes. I yeah. think this is day five. All jokes aside, crew camp's kind of wholesome at times. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. But man, I think that's day five of this stage. Because he goes on. Well, he just said he's been gone for six. Oh, days. sorry. He's uh, sorry. This is day six already. Yeah. This is okay. the end of it. This is w- w- the end of at least his trek through enemy territory. Now he's back in friendly territory. Still, t- if he, <laughs> yeah. it but, still took him a while quote, to get quote, to friendly. like home base. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So he basically he's found by a black village that are actually later on he learns from a special branch informant that this black village thought he was from South Africa. He was a black man because <laughs> he was so messed up at this point. And he, he kept throughout this period, he's very disciplined, he kept applying his Masunga to appear black. They thought he was like a black guy who escaped like a prison or something from, from South Africa. Or like he was like a black terrorist. Or They they weren't sure because he, he had his weapon on him the whole time. He refused to abandon it. And uh, he was clearly some sort of guerrilla paramilitary guy. He could speak Chalapalapa, which is like a english slash african languages dialect it's 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 a mix of languages that the immigrant miners yeah it's like pigeon english so it just all the immigrant miners that came into southern africa from further north like congo kenya they, they all speak different languages so when they showed up there they came up with this tongue chilapalapa so all these different ethnic groups in southern africa that immigrated from elsewhere could communicate and they could also communicate with the English-speaking locals, right? So he speaks Jalapalapa well enough that these these villagers think like, okay, he's some sort of African. We don't know where he's from. And they start feeding him. So he starts eating like a lot of food, probably like far too much for his state. He gets pretty, he doesn't feel super well still. He's very delirious. And they try to actually keep him at the base because they know there's a Rhodesian patrol looking around and they don't want the Rhodesian patrol to find him because they assume he's a like a terrorist, right? He's like, he's one of the Zanley guys or, or maybe he's a fugitive, who knows? They don't know what he is because he didn't identify himself. And he's like, no, no, I can't stay in this village. I have to, I have to find somebody. And he, he walks off and eventually um, he sees a vehicle. He drops his Uzi immediately. He just walks up to him. He rips open his shirt to show his white skin and he's just he doesn't say a heck of a lot at this point and they they know like this is this is the scout that's been missing for six days this is this is a the bearded wonder as they as he later became known the bearded wonder they found him and right away he was rushed to hospital and stuff and they i I feel like they they didn't really account for the fact that he was severely malnourished mm-hmm. severely dehydrated he was at like literally at risk of dying at this point yeah um they fed him normal food and stuff but they gave him like a little again he had eaten so much of this village and stuff and you know we, you know what happens when like starvation when you're at a starvation level and you like gorge like you'll die yeah your body will get sick you'll, it'll very sick at least <laughs> yeah well no if you you, you can die like if you oh, yeah, gorge yeah. your body after a period of actual starvation, like you will die, 
right? Yeah. If you, you can. like literally eat like an apple pie with ice cream and a steak after having not eaten for six days, you're dead. <laughs> like you're you're probably gonna die. You know. Also, if you've been like being shot at, yeah, I, I think it depends on physiology of the individual, but yeah, sure, sure, yeah. but yeah. You, it will not be a fun time for no. you. We'll put it that way. Yeah. It'll be something very risky. Yeah, you're 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 at risk of seriously, seriously injuring, harming yourself. So he's not in a good state at this point. There, and also to add to like the mental strain of everything. They bring his fiance because they think this will this will help him and and uh, he is a reunion for her and then and then like finally like after this like the his body starts like kicking back. The next day, I was flown back to Scouts, having a Briton Norman Islander of three squadron to myself, and I was taken all the way to the Scouts airfield. There a Land Rover met me and took me to camp to give my future wife Sue a surprise. She knew I had been found, but I had no idea when I would be back. This time, it was a very emotional reunion. God, it was good to be back in her arms. A few hours later, just before lunch, I was in the unit medical center having my heels and feet treated. As a matter of form, mainly because of my weight loss, a saline drip was put up. I was so thin you could smell the shit through my ribs. Suddenly I really lost it. The emotion of my ordeal eventually being over was too much and I started convulsing, making an ugly grunting noise combined with violent shaping, shaking and collapsing from delayed shock. Steve Thackeray, the medic, immediately forced the drip by squeezing the life-giving fluid into me to keep my veins from collapsing. Afterwards he says that the fact that the drip had already been set up had saved my life because with the blood vessels collapsing with the state I was in, it would have been near impossible to find a vein, never mind getting a needle in. The scout's doctor was alerted and flown from Bindura to attend to me, and it was, but it was the quick-thinking medic who saved my life at this very late stage. So yeah, he like mentally and physically collapsed after. Yeah, this is a full like 24 hours after we recovered, yes. but again, like this, the, yeah. they kind of overwhelmed him with stuff, and he had eaten so much food like normally at this point. They were giving him treatment, but yeah, he like he literally almost died. He went into like a state of shock, like yeah. pre-shock, like he was just convulsing, and it's like end of life stuff, you know, when you're making weird. It's like having sounds. a seizure, yeah, yeah. Because I've seen um, you know, those weird live leak videos or whatever. Well, there's that there's that famous one where the guy takes uh, cyanide in court. Oh, the He's, Croatian dude. Not the Croatian dude. Uh, the there's another guy who was given a life sentence for for murder or something, and he smuggled the cyanide pill in into his courtroom. And I remember watching that video when that guy like died, like he, he was making a grunting sound, convulsing, and shaking and and freaking mm -hmm. out. So yeah, yeah, and it's just like that sounds like end of life stuff, man. That's brutal. Yeah, no, yeah, it was said so he almost died, right? Yeah, yeah, straight up straight up like as close as you can cut like literally like end of life yeah convulsion uh when when my my late grandmother passed away she was 102 just like the last i don't i don't know it was relatively peaceful but just the last because she wanted to have a final breath i guess i don't know what was going on she had a, she had a um, low white cell count or something as well as explained to me 
it didn't seem like she was in any pain, but it was just like her end of life thing was she closed her eyes and started grunting and convulsing just for like two seconds, three seconds, whatever. And then, you know, she was, she was gone. Yeah. Remember that. I remember that. She's 102 years old, right? Different context, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. It's like this, it sounds like something dying or an animal dying. I've heard animals dying. You know, when I, when I was um, hunting this past season, we took a pheasant, uh, but fuck this pheasant was tough. (laughs) We, we nailed it. I think the two of us actually nailed it because I, I, I think I clipped its wing or something. I don't know what I did. I, I did something to it. I clipped it somewhere and somebody else clipped it somewhere else. It wasn't fucking nice. There's nothing nice about it, right? It wasn't the most humane situation. You need to work on your aim, in other yeah. words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was a little bit of grunting I could hear. Yeah. Again, wasn't long though. Wasn't long and mm-hmm. and then the animal... I don't think I think the animal honestly was brain dead at this stage. Um, there was no. It was just like the body, the body convulsing, yeah. and and you know, yeah. I think it was dead. <laughs> I don't think this thing was alive, but yeah, it's like that's like end of life shit mm-hmm. for real. This is what it sounds like when people die, right? And that's that's where he was. Mm-hmm. I think it's like kind of spiritually, like yeah. he died in that jungle. So anyways, that's... On that, that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note, he fights for a few more years in the war. Exactly, that, yeah. Rather than going, wow, I'm going to write a best-selling New York Times book about my six days in the jungle and the most extreme escape in this uh, evade scenario in military history. Now nah, I'm going to go... He goes right back to the unit. Mm-hmm. Not only that, he goes to this place on the border of uh, Mozambique, this town called Malvernia. He's attached to a major John Murphy, who I described earlier. They kind of are a goofy unit. They call themselves Murphy's Marauders. (laughs) Bunch of crazy Salute Scouts guys. And they go to a place they nickname Little Russia. But very quickly they, well, Change, yeah. They I know you're excited. Quickly changed it to Fuck City, because f- <laughs> that's the only thing that happens to you when you're there. You get fucked. Yeah, you get fucked. This was one of the few places in the Rhodesian bush where I think where there was just straight up conventional warfare. At this latest stage, they were yep. firing artillery and mortars at each other from this other sides. This little dinky town. It was like if Berlin, if both border guards started shooting at each other from both sides of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, it was a it was a weird artillery mortar battle constantly. Yeah. Now they're like the west portion of the Western Front, like in the low intensity. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh the town on the Rhodesian side was a normal little town until the Portuguese left. Right. They they collapsed in the in the mid seventies there. So there was a BSAP station there with a the little town. Throughout the entire war the BSAP never closed down a police station. They just pulled cops away. So they still maintain an active station there, even though there was no more civilians in the area. Cause they're like, we're getting shelled every day. We're not living here anymore. So there was one unfortunate police officer who is not named, but every night the Salou scouts showed up at fuck city 
they would get fucked because the sleuth scouts would start shooting mortar. Well, there there was a, I think it was um a Rhodesia regiment mortar platoon, and it definitely an RAR. Yeah. Re- so if different mortar platoons are rotating there, and it's just like a rotation. You'd show up there, you'd pop a few mortars at the at the Frelimo Zanla guys, and they'd pop a few thousand artillery rounds back at you, and then you'd pop one mortar because you know there's no money in the budget at this point for. They had like twenty five pounders, which were antiquated. They had like these really old World War Two surplus artillery pieces, or maybe even World War One. Who knows? Yeah. They're they're ancient, and they're popping like just pot shots at at. And then the Salute Scouts would do the raids, and like Dennis is involved in several of these raids, and including one where he derails a train, killing three hundred uh, Zanla and Ferlimo fighters, which. He actually gets reprimanded for, which is kind of bullshit. We'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Back to back to Fuck City, because you get the you go to Fuck City, Little Russia. They call it Little Russia because of all the Russian ordnance being thrown at them. You get to Fuck City, you get fucked for real. And he spends most of the remainder of the actual high intensity part of his war there mm-hmm. at Fuck City. And just to show how desperate the Rhodesians are for ammunition and they're it's starting to come down to the wire by the end of the war they're shooting bottle rockets at literally like like toy like fireworks not actual like military munitions but just like they're making noise just to freak out the other side so that for a limo with their heavy soviet and chinese artillery and stuff they're just firing all their rounds right at the rhodesians um in exchange for bottle rockets. So they're trying to get them to expend rounds, right? Which Ron Reed Daly has a, has a thing where he talks about it. Like he was like, um, I'd like to requisition something for the Sleuth Scouts. I'm like, yeah, what do you need? You need like artillery? Do you need mortars? And he's like, I need like bottle rockets. <laughs> it's like, why do you need those? And he, and Crocoms remembers when he shows up to base, they get like issued these like bottle rock, little like toys, like, like, also, there was apparently at, at some point in Fuck City, there was a remote-controlled airplane being flown around. <laughs> <laughs> the terrorists on the other side, like holy shit, it's the Rhodesian Air Force, and they like wasted ammo, like anti-aircraft fire over top, like shooting at it. They never brought it down instantly because it's a fucking tiny toy. toy. Yeah. But they, yeah, they were like shooting at this like plane, thinking it was like a Rhodesian scout Cessna flying low or something. I don't know. I don't know what's going through their minds, but regardless, like they did whatever they could at Fuck City to get the Frelimo and Zanla to waste ammo, and they did a pretty good job of that. That's pseudo ops in a nutshell. It's just to fuck people up, and and again, they're still running these standard pseudo ops where they're going in basically black faced and sketching out the enemy to the point where they're shooting their own groups and they're shooting their own comrades and other groups thinking that those guys are Rhodesians and they're just like firing at each other and they'd be like gunfights between terrorist groups and they'd literally just be chilling there and they'd hear like and it's like is that us? I was like oh that's them (laughs) like there there are times where shit like that happens so it it was it was incredible what these guys were doing um and then, and again, another thing towards the end of the war there, the Nyad Zona raid. Uh, after raiding Mapai, which I mentioned um, Warren Officer Yanni Nell very, very early in this podcast, I'll describe some of the characters he runs into. 
he's killed in this town in Mozambique called Mapai. That's kind of like a almost like a fortress town for for, for Limo and Zanla. On one of their external operations, uh, he's killed, I think, by a mortar, if I remember correctly. Enemy mortars take him out. So they go and they they're like, we're going to destroy this fortress, and they did they do in this you know external raid. And after taking Mapai, he finds this document related to the Nyad Zona raid. Now, the Nyad Zona raid might ring a bell for a lot of people. The Rhodesians knew it as Op Eland. That was that very famous one where the very, very, very small group of Slew scouts showed up to a base in Mozambique and killed anywhere from 600 to 1,000 to 2,000 enemy fighters. A lot of the propaganda during the war and even after the war and, and, and stuff that I've read up until the present day being published by different news publications, different academic sources sometimes even, peer-reviewed sources claim that the Nyad Zona raid was on a refugee camp. It was not a military establishment. That, that the Salus scouts, when they showed up, dressed as Frelimo, in Frelimo uniforms, standard pseudo-op stuff, the only thing that wasn't standard is they had anti-aircraft guns in the back of their Unimog trucks that they had hidden. They opened them up as soon as the group of terrorists and stuff ran around their trucks checking out what was going on and saluting their comrades and welcoming them as heroes and all the rest and they opened up with anti-aircraft guns and that's how they were able to wipe out so many of these these dudes crow camp is not involved in that operation and a lot of the scouts that are involved you know we'll, we'll discuss in future books and stuff there's a mm -hmm. that's a whole other topic in and of itself and the potential controversy but one of the things that you may hear a lot of and i mean a lot <laughs> historical academic journalistic right is that this was a refugee camp and it wasn't because at the mapai the second battle or raid on mapai where they you know wipe out the the enemy garrison there crocomp in his personal possession finds this well he gets into his possession this document and it's written by a survivor of the incident at Nyadzona, the Nyadzona raid. This guy was a terrorist fighter in Zanla. He describes in detail, a lot of detail, his personal recruitment, like what the point of the camp was, how he was recruited into it, how it was like structured, what the activities were. He has photos of what's going on. He finds photos of what's going on at Nyadzona, including thousands of people marching around with SKSs under arms. And yeah, there, it was a military base. Like there were, yes, there were women and children there. Every single one of them was under arms. It was revolutionary warfare. It was the Viet Minh, Viet Cong style million person army mindset. Right? There's nothing, there's nothing refugee campy about it. Everybody there was there to get indoctrinated into communist propaganda and commit to acts of terror against the black population of Rhodesia to terrorize them into accepting communist doctrine. Like that was, that was their war. Right. And that's why, like, even though we're not super political, we're not very sympathetic to these people. Not to Zan, not, not to, to Zan, 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 Zan
killing a lot of their own relatives, their own elders, their own family, children killing their parents. You know, it's just the standard. Honestly, you can, and on top of that, there are reprisal attacks on anybody seemingly sympathetic to the Rhodesians, whether that's imagined sympathy or actual sympathy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time it was imagined. I mentioned the train derailment where Crocomp gets in trouble with Ron Reed Daly, um, which again, I have, I have to circle back to that. <laughs> that's, that's a whole yeah. other bloody incident. But when he blows up this, this train, he does kill a bunch of soldiers, but when he returns to Mozambique on a further pseudo-op, he goes to this wreckage of this train. He's like, oh, that's sweet. Like, I blew up this train. Look at that. We did this, and we killed a bunch of the enemy. Us two, him and a buddy, uh, Sergeant John uh, Jean de Sable, the, the Frenchman, who are, is also a Salute scout, they blow up this train. They're super They're stoked, and then they, they drive on. They they see this village, and it's, it's burned out, and they're like, that village wasn't burned out last time. Did we do? Did we do that? Like, what the hell's going on here? And they they look around and they see that all the the livestock have also been killed. Every single cow, chicken, pig in the village is dead. There's just skeletons left. And he's like, what the hell's going on? They find out later from special branch through again police informants and stuff and double agents that for Limo, believing that the Salute Scouts did not have the capability to blow up that train without local assistance went into that village like we're talking Heydrich Himmler style Gobble style like Nazi full on Nazi style and we're like we're gonna wipe you out and that's exactly what they did every single male over the age of 18 was killed just mass grave everything of livestock was killed every building was burned to the ground all the women and children surviving that were not outright killed were put into a communist concentration camp in Mozambique. And then, you know, this was the towards the end of the war, so... This is one of the things that Dennis is, like, conflicted Liter- about. Literally, was, like, the destruction yeah. of Ladis, which was the yeah, that's town the, which yeah. the, the Nazis destroyed after uh, Heydrich was assassinated. Yeah, Heydrich assassination, yeah. When I read that, I was just, I was just thinking of Heydrich the whole time. I'm like, yeah. this, is, this is exactly... Obviously, I think that the Nazis killed everybody. I don't think they... No, did they... they did they, they did, concentration they, camp? They did the did exact same thing. They killed every man and sent every... Woman um, and child to... Every woman and child to concentration Russia camps in Poland, most of whom did not survive the yeah. war. Um, I would and, imagine... And then they burned the entire town, basically, uh, to the ground. I would like, be shocked. Like, was a ruin. Yeah, left. I'd be very shocked, given for Limo's human rights record, because I know a little bit about it, and what they did to all the Portuguese... Like the black soldiers aligned with the Portuguese after the war. Uh-huh. Long story short, they killed them all, yeah. <laughs> literally. And and what Payjack did in in Guinea, so like they killed them all. Listen, like if you want to, you want to know what happened to them. They all died, every single one, unless they got out of the country. If they stayed, they were killed. Okay, that's just that's just it's nasty, but that's what happened. That's history, right? And um, yeah, these these people were all killed because of. Procomp's actions. Now he didn't. He did he have any idea that this would happen? No. No. He didn't mean for this to happen. And he didn't mean. And he was like, he was definitely disturbed by it because he remembers like passing the shell of this village, going like, what, what the fuck? This is um, this ain't cool. So, mm-hmm. regardless, Nyadzona was not a fucking. Was it, not, it was not. It was not innocent. Camp. No. 
none of these fuckers were innocent. Yeah. Hey, maybe the Rhodesians weren't either, but these fuckers were not liberation fighters. No. There's nothing... Yeah. Or at nothing least their honorable. version of liberation is something we would not... Is not something nothing, flowers and no. you know freedom for all and yeah. the, the bells ring and all that. Let's put it this way. If the people during that period knew that they were supporting acts like these with foodstuffs, if the housewife in Denmark and the Netherlands, because that's where a lot of the foreign aid came from to these terrorist groups and the World Food Program, the United Nations, if they knew what was going on, if they, they got the real, what Special Branch knew. Well, I think they did know, but they just, they just didn't Well, the UN them. probably The knew. UN they, probably knew, they, but I don't they, think the, I don't think I don't the, think the, I don't think the knew, housewife but... knew. I, the housewife just thought, oh, there's starving people in Africa. Yeah. And fucking paid for something, gift from the government of Denmark. Because like, that's whenever, um, Dennis is doing, Dennis Krokop's doing these pseudo-ops. He's running into terrorist uh, weapons or ammunition or supply caches, and he's finding stuff donated from, like, literally saying government of Denmark gift or whatever. And he's mm-hmm. just like, shit, man. I've Because he, he has relatives that are from the Netherlands, and he's like, government of the Netherlands gift. And he's like, wow, like, I wonder what my fucking ancestors would think. In that sense, I think he's a, he's a bit of a true blue roadie, but it's it's more so just out of the the recognition of how bad the enemy is and how how moral the enemy he was fighting was he's not exactly sympathetic to politicians cuz he no again he doesn't like authority so he's not a huge like Rhodesian front shill or anything like no. that i don't i don't get that vibe but man it was just the stuff he witnessed right like like a like a reprisal atrocity and also just seeing like these guys are comp- like really violent and inept and shooting at each other when they think yeah. you're a Rhodesian. No, you're the Rhodesian. And then they all start yeah. shooting at each other. He's witnessing this. And, and, and we're not saying here, guys, that the Rhodesians or their allies didn't commit war crimes or anything as well. They did. It was a very bloody war, like all yeah, the d- counterinsurgency. Procom mentions, I, I think I talked about it earlier, they, they shoot a prisoner because the guys are tired of carrying the wounded prisoner. So they just shoot him. Yeah, so nasty like it, things... Nasty shit happens. Happens on all sides. Yeah. But what we are saying is that the, the liberation fighters were yeah. terrorists in every conventional use of the and, term. And again, you need yeah. to read this book because Crocom goes into more detail about that POW shooting. And there's actually like a whole like court-martial thing and he tries to... And then there's like a... Mm-hmm. It's long. It's a long... Yeah. It's a long excerpt. That being said, on the note of court-martials and, and discipline and stuff, he has a lot of issues with his commanding officer, too. The legendary Ron Reed Daly, who founded the Slew Scouts unit. So for, first off, when he's on that escape and evasion mission, right away, as soon as he comes back, he gets married, and I think he sees the CO, the boss, like a week later or whatever, a few, few days later after his wedding and the boss just says to him after because he just survived this huge E and E and his only words to him are not just like wow you just accomplished one of the greatest fucking escape innovations in military history he says junior you fucked up word for word that's what that's all he says not a not a pat on back not good job completing your mission because he didn't blow up the train so he's just like yeah junior you fucked up 
that's all he cares about. He's, he's such a perfectionist, right? And you'll find that in a lot of books about, about Ron Reed. He was a huge, huge perfectionist. He was kind of headstrong in many ways. So that was something that kind of irked him. And then, and then probably the worst was when he uh, blew up this train. I, I mentioned this earlier, blew up this train, kills 300 Philemo fighter with, with uh, Jean de Sable and read the book if you want details on that. When he blows up this train, he comes back and he's like, oh yeah, we just, we, we just slotted 300 of the fuckers. We got them. We did it. Like this is the biggest for an individual soldier. 150 kills each is not bad in a day's work. It's, it's fucking impressive. And, uh, he comes back and Ron Reed's like, hey, you left it like a, like a tiny, tiny little piece of evidence of the fucking type of explosive we use when you're blowing up the trains and you therefore compromise the mission, I should, like, fucking court-martial you, you fucking piece of shit. Basically, <laughs> just, and then, like, and Crow Crown, like, literally couldn't fucking believe it. He's like, are you, you fucking kidding me? Like, I, I just... I think, yeah, he literally just says in the book, like, fuck. That's, yeah. <laughs> and he, he, he's almost, like, in tears. He's trying to, like, hold back tears because this is someone he respects and looks up to and had recruited him into the scouts and had mentored him to become this operator and was just, like... It's cool. So, yeah, you just killed 300 of our enemies. And also, like, not only that, but the... So the first train derails, 300 people are killed in this. It's a massive train derailment because it's a troop transport. Yeah. So these guys are, like, stuffed into uh, rail cars. So they repair the tracks, but the guys repairing the tracks don't know anything about track repair, I guess, because it's Mozambique in the in the 70s. And instead of using the basalt rocks as the base for the tracks, they use sand from just because like this this whole area this whole track area is like sandy. So they just start dumping sand on where the explosion happened, like over top of the crater. Sand cannot like hold a metal track, you know, like a, like a train track, like it'll just sink. So what happened when the second train crossed over? Guess what happened? It also derailed. Like, if this happened, like, a week later, another train yeah. came by. It's unrelated to the military, but it just came by and also derailed. So, technically, they derailed two trains for the price of one. And they were getting, like, threatened with, like, court-martial and shit for leaving a tiny, tiny fucking evidence of explosive. And he just, like... It's what happens when you blow things up. There's, tr like, yeah. we're not professional arsonists, right? We're gonna fuck shit up and leave. But anyways, um... Yeah, so he he always has issues with his chain, and uh, and gradually his his war comes to an end, as as it does for all Rhodesian soldiers. He's not happy about it, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll leave it at that because it's a it's a story you'll just have to read, guys. Um, I think we'll end off here on a note about this escape and evasion which we've heavily focused on or at least try to in this podcast and try to communicate that story as best we could I don't think one of my little men among men post stories does it justice or that epitaph does it justice like it was incredible what he accomplished over those six days and uh, one of his comrades in the Salute Scout op room a man by the name of Kevin Thomas puts it best what few people realize is that Dennis Crewcamp's epic escape and evasion carried out against appalling odds and cut off entirely from any contact with friendly forces 
must surely rank very highly alongside those of the British SAS soldier John Saletto, who during the Second World War in 1942 trekked alone for more than 100 miles across the western desert of North Africa, this after having been stranded behind German lines. More recently, and on the evening of 24th of January 1991, a British SAS patrol was compromised deep inside enemy lines in Iraq during the opening phases of Operation Desert Storm. Of the eight-member patrol, only one escaped capture after an incredible 120-kilometer hike through hostile enemy territory. The SAS soldier on this occasion was Chris Ryan. As a result of his incredible march, he too has become part of British SAS history. General Sir Peter de la Belaire said to Chris Ryan, you have personally made SAS history. Dennis Kruekamp in his walk out from Mozambique also faced heavy odds, not only from Frelimo and Zanala combatants, who actively chased and hunted him as he made his weary way west to the Rhodesian border, but also from unfriendly terrain and unbelievable heat. For the southern African October and November months are often referred to as suicide months. In addition to the previously mentioned threats that faced Dennis, he also had to contend with dangerous animals such as buffalo, elephant, and lion. Thus, it can confidently be said that Dennis Krukamp's escape and evasion from Mozambique in late 1976 totaled close on 200 kilometers. If his meandering and backtracking in order to avoid capture are taken into consideration, his was on par with the escapes of those two intrepid British SAS soldiers, Ryan and Saletto. So guys, we've uh, gone a bit longer on this podcast than we usually do, but this is a bit of a longer book than we usually cover. It's a good book, though. It is a very a good, good book. book. You uh, need to read it. Uh, I, felt we should, I felt we should bring that up as far as uh, our podcasts keep getting longer. We'll try and trim the next one a bit for you guys. but We'll make it double the length. We'll make it four hours. Make it, it'll be, at this point, it'll be close to six. <laughs> um, so Dennis Crewcamp, wherever you are, Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Yeah. You were a legend. Yeah. You were a legend. And I I am eternally grateful he wrote this book because this, um, this is comprehensive. I don't think I've ever seen a work or memoir account this detailed and with just, you know, so many specifics. So, yeah, man, this is, uh, this is a hell of a book. And we appreciate you guys listening to these podcasts, especially this one. This one, I think, um, has been in the works for, like, months because yeah. this, this was a pretty long book. I mean, to think about it, how, how we're going to approach this. And hopefully this, like, holistic approach was a little better. I know, like, we, we did a lot of quotes from that Escape and Evasion excerpt, but, man, we didn't even scratch the surface. With... It, it is the it is the defining moment of the book. Mm-hmm. And it is... And I think this is, this is the book, if you want to know the pinnacle of what it was like to be a Slew Scout operator. This is... If you want to know about fire force and what the majority of the soldiers running those fire force missions went through, read Chris Cox. If you want to know what a pseudo operator was all about from start to finish, Dennis Crocomp. Those are the two. Those are the two tomes you need to get into your system however possible. I'd like to end off with a note of thanks to our subscriber. About time, man. Yes, yeah, we've 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 neglected this for a while. Your fault. My I've fault. Been, I've been begging you 
Oh, I've been like, you got to think. Such we a gotta, crock of shit. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta think. You were like, oh, yeah. fuck anyway, the subscribers. Our subscribers, we thank you very much, and we especially thank Gareth W. and a certain man named Jonathan G. We're our current active subscribers, but we also want to thank James M. Delwyn S. Kashim and Thad S who are our previous subscribers. Thank you guys all for everything that you've uh, you've given us. It's your contributions that keep this show alive. So thank and you very much. Again, you can you if you want to support us after having done this interview or sorry, this podcast, sorry, and the previous interview we did with uh, Chris Cox going over his seminal work Fire Force which is equally as good, I think, in, in many ways. Oh, absolutely. Take a lot shorter than this because it, it goes over two years of uh, two years of RLI service. I think two years, three, three years. Sorry, three years of RLI service versus fourteen years in the bush. <laughs> yeah, which is this book. It's a, this book's a lot longer for, and it feels longer just because it's years, right? But if you want to support us in any way and um, help us look, or perhaps share with you guys more of these stories that you may or may not have heard before, or at least these perspectives that you may not have heard about in reference to conflicts like the Rhodesian Bush War or other forgotten conflicts, lost classic war memoirs, stuff like that. Please do check out our website, which you're probably listening on, menamongmenstories.com. You can support us on Subscribestar, where you too can be a subscriber and earn a shout-out on this podcast at www.menamongmenstories.com. You can just click on the, I think, the support us section or the... Yes, the support, support us. us section. And you can also find us at www.subscribestar.com slash menamongmenstories, which is the new hyperlink that we just got. It's all nice and fancy. You can donate to us there if you would like to support us in any way, shape, and form. It could be anything from a dollar to, well, as much as your heart contents we appreciate we like king's all. ransoms <laughs> well you do you'll only shout out people that uh give you give us a hundred dollar donation the, tur the turbo chat right that's not true i just shouted out everybody we were saying that before the podcast anyway uh, i thought that was the anyway well why do you need why do you need all this money is it to buy military surplus perhaps <laughs> <laughs> is it Smooth segue. Very smooth segue. It is, right? It's, yes, uh, it's to buy military surplus. Sorry, he, he probably burst your eardrums <laughs> yeah. laughing there. But yeah, you know, once you get that $100 donation, you could spend it at my website, www.fireforceventures.com, on all things Rhodesia and Militaria, which is very cool. You can also get a few books there now, which is new. You can get Chris Cox's Fire Force, available now at fireforceventures.com, and Survival Course, The Rhodesian Denouement and War of Self, also by Chris Cox, detailing his time after the RLI and his Fire Force missions, again, also available at www.fireforceventures.com. I would personally really appreciate the support there, appreciate the support here on the podcast as well, because the donations to the podcast helps us do things related strictly to the podcast, um, allows Bindu to pay for his coffee bill which is quite expensive and um yeah we could we could maybe give you a new haircut or something too 
Actually, funny enough, up until a few weeks ago, I had a beard exactly like Crew Camps on the cover of this, just <laughs> messy and tangled and everything. It's glorious. Crew Camp, again, Bearded Wonder. I, only, I, I probably only said that once in the podcast, but yes. Bearded Wonder. You know, if you find yourself with enough money and enough Millsurp and you just have a little bit of extra time, you could also read more about all things guns, tactics, and military gear related over at our friend's blog, Commando Blog, commandoblog.com. Check out all kinds of tactical, lifestyle-related articles there. Uh, and, of course, you may very well be listening on there or iTunes or, of course, our website. Wherever you're listening, we really appreciate it. Um, again... Special thanks to Dennis Crocamp, wherever you are, for writing this book. We are eternally grateful. Special thanks as well to every pseudo-operator who served during the Rhodesian Bush where your exploits are the stuff of legend. And We can only hope that in our lifetimes, in some way, we can manifest the same courage. Thank you. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a very nice evening, or whenever you're listening to this. Cheers, guys.